everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Went Black podcast. This episode features Anthony Papalardo. I met Anthony a long time ago when I lived back in Boston. He was playing in a band called In My Eyes, who were um, at the time signed to Revelation Records and were pretty big band in the Boston hardcore scene. Since then, he's launched a prolific writing career. You can read his work in Vice and Noisy, and he has two published books out right now. So, um, so yeah, we had a good time tonight. This episode is brought to you by Savage Gold Coffee. Go on over to savagegoldcoffee.com and buy yourself a couple pounds of coffee and t-shirts and all that sort of stuff. Also, affiliate sponsorship through Onnit, Dotsusara, and NatureBox. So if you go to the Everything Went Black Media website, you can check out those banners. And uh, if you want to purchase something from those sites, please click through. And I get to uh, wet my beak and uh, keep myself alive for another month. So um, so there, there you go. Also, if you can uh, do me a favor and uh, if you're checking this out on iTunes, give me, write me a review. Give me your star rating. It really helps out a lot. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Mike Hill HQ. So what have you been up to for the last uh, 20-something years? Uh, well, a lot of writing, I guess, right? Yeah, like I moved I moved here in 2002 yeah. with no plan, and I immediately just started getting writing gigs, and I started playing in a band with uh, Dean Baltolonis and Mark Ryan, trying to get that off the ground, and there was all these different permutations of that, but I felt, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't abandoning playing music. I wanted to come here and do a bunch of things. And uh, I'd been writing before. I'd like in Boston. I I started writing for a national skateboarding mag, and then I started writing for music magazines. You know, like I was writing for Spin and Alternative Press before Alternative Press shifted over formats to like straight kind of like emo. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and. What was the other magazine? Uh, I think Magnet was another. Oh yeah, magazine. that was a dumber that magazine. Yeah, so like I had like a little bit in my quiver, and I came here and I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I should be able to write for these magazines here. Like that'll be easy, right? And that was not the look. <laughs> and I met this. Well, not met. I had reconnected with uh, my friend Nathan at this art show. He had this idea, and and the main thing was. That really resonated. He was like, you know, we should do a hardcore book. And, you know, American Hardcore had come out a little bit before that. And I was like, oh, what, what are you thinking? He's like, I don't know. Nothing showcases the artistry of it or the idea of how these things are created and how it's like this, not so much of a community. I mean, it's always talked about, it's a community. Everyone comes in. We're all friends, which is bullshit, right? But no one had just talked about how this was a subculture that spawned so many things. You could see so many things kind of shooting off it. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And we met up and we just started in on it and we were able to secure an agent. And then, so basically I worked 
just a bunch of stupid jobs. And which book was that? That was the... Okay, so that was Radio Silence. That was Radio Silence. Yeah, okay. we secured a deal for it pretty early on, but then it took us probably four years total to make that book because basically what we did is we looked at all these things that we thought were interesting and we were like, can we get behind... The, what's the backstory behind this? Who created it? Let's talk to the creator. And it's almost like, you know, we wanted to approach it like an art history book of like, why did these aesthetics happen? You know, and I think the one thing that was hard then because people were still a little feeling out social media is like you'd be some guy who did an amazing drawing on a record in or illustration painting whatever in the 80s and then some dude just emails you and you check your email once a week and you're oh, like yeah. Yeah. what the fuck is this it wasn't the same connectivity that you have now it's all instantly people, yeah yeah and i think two people were still very protective of how punk and hardcore was being documented and so it was it was a little bit of a struggle at first but i think the the thing that broke it open was when uh, the Discord guys were like, cool, like that sounds awesome. And we went to Jeff Nelson's house in Ohio. Oh, wow. Spent a couple days with him and just went through everything and really showed him the, the context of what this stuff meant. But also, you probably weren't just some random guy because you know you you were in you know a band that was on Revelation, you know, in my eyes. And mm -hmm. so there, you know, it wasn't just like some guy off the street who wanted to exploit some hardcore music and art. So, I mean, you know, people were, at least, at least you had a little bit of like, sort of, yeah, yeah like, but you know, then, I'm like kind of one of these guys, you know, but then also like the, the secondhand embarrassment comes when you send a, like a written letter to Ian McKay and he knows you're in a band that references one of his songs, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, you're like, Oh, that really was a bad idea. Did you actually, <laughs> you, you, you were in contact with Ian McKay, I guess with, with the discord and, uh, did he, did that come up like some sort of uncomfortable, uh, no, it's actually, yeah. we were in contact with him a little bit prior because on the second in my eyes record, we covered a song by the faith. And so I wanted to clear it. Oh, right. With, with discord. Yeah. And he was like, you know, like just typical Ian McKay, right? Like, uh, you have to clear my brother. So my song, you know, and then goes right. into the whole soliloquy about how things work. And I'm like, okay. And I called, I don't know if he still works there, but Alec worked at the Guggenheim okay. at the time. This actually reminded me of something funny. So I called him up and he was really cool. And he was like, oh, are you like on a major label or anything? I'm like, no, we're on Revelation. He's like, oh, I've heard of that. He's like, so it's not like a money thing. I'm like, no, we just want to like, you know, pay homage to that song. You know, uh, what's wrong with me by the faith. And he's like, oh, cool. And then I had mentioned that we were recording vocals, uh, Brian McTurnan, yeah. Shifting Studios, yep. and he was going to be back in D.C. And he, he was like, oh, you know the part where the guy yells, what's wrong with me? Can I yell that? And I was like, fucking dude. Like, ignition, I love Ignition. Yeah, Ignition. Yeah, I thought yeah. they were incredible. I thought the Faith were great, too. But I'm like tripping, like, okay. So we went on tour, you know, recorded the recorded the base basic tracks and we went on tour and we were on our way back and we had had this like terrible drive from i forget where probably ohio or something back to boston like our our tour stopped and we were rooting back and we were at a rest stop i forget where and you know it's like you're kind of like hazy because of the the long drive or whatever everyone's fucking grumpy 
there's nothing to look forward to except getting home. Yeah, and that that Ohio to Massachusetts drive is not the most picturesque route either. No, you know? it's just yeah, it's just it all looks the same. Just fucking I ninety or whatever all the way across <laughs> New York, across yeah, Ohio, to- across Connecticut, uh, total highway malaise. And we, I get, I'm taking a piss, and I look over, and I see this like James Dean looking guy, and I'm like, is that fucking hell? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, man, I'm like, you can't break the guy code of starting a convo. No, not when you got your dick in your hand. Definitely <laughs> yeah. not. Yep. In so, Ohio or wherever. Yeah, like some, some <laughs> rando rest stop. And then, you know, I felt bad. I mean, I looked like a fucking bum. I had showered in a couple days. And I'm in, like, some, like, running shorts or something. And struck up a conversation. He was super cool. He's like, well, yeah, you know, that's really neat and everything. And, you know, if I can do the, the vocal, that would be cool. And, like, he... He was talking to me about vintage motorcycles. I don't know shit about that, and I humored him. And then, so whatever, it, the timing didn't work out. We recorded the tune, and then I sent the CD to Discord. Nothing. They had no, no response yeah, nothing, at all? nothing. You know, whatever. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so that's, that's your, first, uh, your first book that, that came out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had written, I had contributed to a book from these guys who worked for Skateboard Magazine Slap that I worked for for a long time that was the the brother publication of Thrasher. Right, right. Um, I did something for them, but that was the first book. And it was really working with, a like, the system of a book. Like, I was talking to someone about this recently that, yeah, I have a credit card. I can publish a book tomorrow, you know. But learning the process of kind of like the the... It's it's dwindling, but the way an editor works with you, it really adds a dimension to your work. Yeah, I've always been interested in in the editorial process because, uh, you know, that I imagine like manuscripts are probably twice as long as they actually end up being when they get to the final work. Yeah. Yeah. Radio Sounds was 600 pages because we wanted to include everything. Like I wanted... Power violence chapter, you know, like every little splinter of hardcore I wanted represented, and then a lot of times, in, in talking to the editor, edit, editor, this guy uh, Jacob Hoy is fantastic. He was like, "Listen, your passion for these things and other people's passions for these things needs to equal how you substantiate it. It's a book; it needs to be backed up." So. If, you know, you can't you can't even find out who designed these men as the bastard graphics, you know, and you can't get that guy to talk. Then it really is just vanity. That's true. That's you a know? good point. Yeah. And I thought I thought that was interesting. And he was like, you know, go with the color, go with the flow. And then he he showed me how to lay out the rhythm of a book, especially when you're doing, you know, we were putting ephemera in there. It wasn't just a straight oral history. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was. I mean, that was. It was a it was a tough thing, and I think Nathan will, who did the book with me, Nathan Nederostic, he will agree. Like it was super tough for two people to do this. You know, he was the the visual identity, and I was the narrative, and we fought so much. But you know, I think in the end we made something that was you know really true to the to the idea. So how that initial introduction to the editorial blade, like how did how did uh, that first time for you? How was that? Was there like a big ego thing going on, or like you, you know, know was it painful? I've been edited before and just been cool with it. Like right. it, at these skate mags, it was like they just 
let me kind of do whatever. And they'd be like, what records do you think are cool? And I'd be like, all right, whatever. And I'd just I'd do interviews with bands I wanted to do or try to bring new flavors into skating because it was like, okay, we're out of the punk rock 80s and anyone can review a Cypress Hill record. I want to just interject something totally different. So maybe it's... I'm not saying it's like the most obscure shit, but to have a tortoise review printed or something or uh, some shoegaze band or something or whatever it was, like putting that, exposing people to it, it was cool they let me do that. But to get under... To have a guy basically take 600 pages and say it's got to be 240 and it's got to mean a lot taught me so much. And then I'll tell you another one was... um, Jason Pettigrew at Alternative Press. I did this story. Uh, my friends, Jeff Newman and Ray Lemoyne, were in Iraq during the beginning of the occupation. They were working for an NGO. Jesus. And they wrote this book, Babylon by Bus, and the only press that they really trusted, you know, other than, like, I mean, they were getting every story. Story We're talking, you know, from New York Times to whomever, and they gave me a lot of access to do this feature, and my whole thing was, like, there's a generation of kids who are, who are like into, you know, let's say like the demarcation is like AFI and stuff like that that's that's happening. And that's what's on the cover of this mag. Man, if I can channel them into, you know, in the way Rolling Stone used to do it. I'm like, if I can trick them into reading sure. about the most important thing yeah, of their lifetimes. Some like heavy content. Yeah. And, you know, Jason took it so serious of like this needs to be bulletproof like you can't just say they were in the green zone you have to qualify what the green zone was and so that was that was another huge huge thing but I think any other battle I've gotten into with editors is more of an ego thing <laughs> yeah you know? no, it's interesting um, it's almost like I don't know do you ever, you ever wrestle at all like in high school or anything like that yeah <laughs> so you know how it is like when you gotta cut down cut weight to like you know mm-hmm. make for me, I had to make 177, so I was like, you know, not when I wasn't in wrestling season. I was like lifting weights and like fucking getting big and shit. But then it was like to get down to 177, I thought I needed all this muscle, but I had fucking lost all that shit just mm-hmm. to get down to that weight class. So you can well, it's destroy. like a producer, right? Yeah. Like if you actually work, you know, like with a producer is hands on. Yeah, and you know, I think like. Maybe the experience when you first get to a studio is like you just want to flood it. Cause oh you're yeah, so excited, man. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, that same thing that happened in um, like the last full length we that Tombs did. We uh, recorded Eric Rutan, who um, I mean, he did you know like Morbid Angel and like mm-hmm. fucking he's he was in Morbid Angel, and um, prior to that, I was uh, definitely of that mindset of like just layering all kinds of stuff and you know. But this time around, because I respected that guy so much, I listened to what he had to say. And um, kind of followed his direction as like a third party, and um, he acted as like an editor on a lot of the overdubs and all these different random guitar solos and like parts and everything. And I think the whole thing was a lot tighter and stronger as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a different flow to that album too, you yeah. know. And like, I think when you're when you're pushing everything in one way, when you go to a song with a different tempo or when you go. Um, songs with different dynamics they become less noticeable because you're still pushing it in the same yeah. direction but if someone can like rear back and be like you know what this lays off this way this doesn't need 
as many tracks or whatever. You know, it's like I, I like that interplay in art. Yeah. It, just in general. Yeah, know? definitely. Like I, I come from a fine art background. I work. With I didn't really, know that. Yeah, I work with. I'm like a. I went to school for printmaking in Mass Art. Oh, you went to Mass Art. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, you went to school with like LaCroix and all those guys? Yeah, and, and I grew okay. up with LaCroix too. Oh, right on. And yeah. LaCroix went the graphic design route. I went the fine art route. And I think the, the biggest thing, like I was, you know, this, I was talking to someone recently and uh, they said this thing t- to me. They were talking about their art and they were like, well, you know, I was like, oh, I'm sorry I couldn't go to your art show. Not to put anyone on blast, but it resonated with me, and it's cool to bring it up. And they said, don't worry about it, art's a lie. And I tripped out on that, because I was like, to me, that's the the most direct link. If you're doing that because you really mean it, that's the most direct link to humanity. You know? Like... It's, I'm not talking about fact-checking. Like, yeah, no, it's not a lie when the stock market, stock market's this and that, but the stock market is a manipulated fake commodity. Yeah. But if I'm trying to convey something, I'm like, you know, I don't even know what the fuck I'm trying to say, but I'm going to express it in paint, I'm going to express it in music, and I put it down. To me, that's the truth, right? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. I mean, the thing, the system that you just described is like an abstraction of, like, made-up shit, you know, mm-hmm modeling through like finite element analysis and all this mathematical stuff which is like but it's an it's an abstraction especially since we're no longer on the gold standard and right so there's no material management it's all risk management and uh but art really i mean like you hit the nail on the head when you said that it's like a direct channel to like what your unconscious mind is trying to convey to the world so it's like that you know i think it's one of the only true things in in life actually is anything that you would create with like a true creative spirit you know i mean there's a lot of people you know we're all guilty of borrowing ideas from people but mm-hmm. maybe if you start with an idea like that and you keep refining it and you put your own personality on that that that's definitely like truer than like you know even like your memories of like certain things change as time goes on too so yeah, yeah. i think like you know, even for me, or like as a writer, like a lot of what I write is anecdotal, and it's it's a weird amalgamation of probably twenty memories into one passage. Like in the book *Live Suburbia*, that's just kind of like these retellings of you know one passage about some moment is probably twenty different things, and maybe a little embellishment. So, getting into the second book, what's what's what was the whole genesis of that book? Um, I had met Max Morton and I liked what he was doing. And I think he had, um, I forget the title. I think it was, uh, Indestructible Wolves was the book. And I thought it was really cool. And I met Max through, uh, Wes Isold and he had asked me to do like a spoken word thing or some type of presentation thing at, at, um, Brass City at the tattoo shop screen shop they have up there. And he was going to do some multimedia thing. And I was like, well, what could I bring of value? I'm like, I'm in suburban Connecticut um, in a, like, a, not a strip mall, but in this, like, rundown downtown. What would I talk about coming off doing this book about hardcore? And the first thing I thought of was Youth of Today <laughs> and, like, the anthrax and all this stuff. And it was just this thing, not about the band, about this idea of I was... I grew up in Lawrence, Mass., and then my parents moved to New Hampshire, and once I moved to New Hampshire, that's when I started really getting into 
just music in general because I had access to get more things, to ride my bike to record shops and, you know, kind of go off in whatever direction. And so I'm just devouring stuff, you know. What can I get at Tape World? What can I get at Spin Out Records at the independent store? And um, what can I order from Thrasher? Just stuff like that. And I thought the craziest thing about Youth of Today was that I had no reference point for it. I mean, it was just so... I'm like, it's kind of like negative approach, but it's very preachy. And these guys kind of look like me. They're these Italian guys from the suburbs. You know, they weren't New York hardcore yet on, like, can't close my eyes. That's what I got. And I'm like, I didn't know SSD control yet or DYS, so I didn't know what they were repurposing. And I just thought there's something cool about it because it was defiance of what was around me. You know, like, it wasn't like they're the most interesting band in the world. It wasn't that they were the most clever band in the world. It was just like, I'm 14, 15, and everything around me is excess, excess. Whether you hang out with the stoners, whether you hang out with the jocks, whether you hang out with the nerds, you're ODing on some type of culture that I wasn't interested in. And I thought that was really cool, so I just went and made this kind of like... I don't know, it's a bizarre thing, it's on YouTube called Me You Youth Crew, and it's it's definitely like, I don't want to say it's snarky, I wasn't trying to be clever, I wasn't trying to be like, I'm a clever guy making fun of something I got into, it was just this idea of like how anything could be your gateway into more things, and then like, what did those guys go off to do? Into another quicksand, Ray becomes a yogi, he's on these missions, and it's like, you know, to us, familiar with that, it's like, whatever, but you talk to you know, Joe regular. And you're like, Oh yeah. When I was 15 years old, I went to this Hare Krishna temple to get free food. And then I got into this shit and I'm going to see this band. And it's like, like the fuck, like, wait a minute. Like that's not a normal. Experience, yeah. It, I, I totally follow what you're saying. Like most people listen to this podcast. That doesn't sound like such a far out concept, but right. if you grab some random guy, you know, and presented that to him, he would have like he'd be like I've never even considered doing that ever <laughs> right right you know <laughs> and when you talk to these dudes like in getting to know Ray like Ray's an interesting guy like he hung with all these uh, you know when he was younger and like moved to New York like he wasn't even hanging out with guys from the hardcore scene he's hanging out with like theater people and people into art and he's bringing them to the shows and he was a, a bouncer at like Tunnel and Twilo like it wasn't as linear as, as people think but you know, the point of that was, like, I was just telling this suburban tale in the suburbs where, you know, that band was from, and I thought, and everyone really liked it, and I liked that Max was the over-the-top, like, it wasn't, like, good cop, bad cop, but, like, I was always maybe, not that I didn't do dumb shit, but I was a little more cautious, and Max was, like, full bore. Yeah. And I was like, we should do a book, like, of that play, you know, because, like, you're the kid recreating the Black Mass, and I'm the kid watching it <laughs> like this is fucked and I have a different experience of it and so I thought you know it'd be be a fun thing to do and I also thought a lot of the the things that happened in kind of a analog culture was really interesting of just the shit that would you you could get away with you know where I grew up is you know less than 30 miles from Boston proper but some of the things that would happen you just be like, how the fuck could you be this close to a city and this place could be 
not that Boston isn't racist also, but, which is another story, but yeah, just like, you know, I think the suburbs are scarier than the city. Oh, I would totally agree with you. I mean, there was a, you know, I lived in Boston for like maybe seven years and, uh, Lawrence is north, right? Yeah. It's like towards the New Hampshire border, yeah. like up 93 or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's a different vibration out there than anything I've ever uh, encountered because I, I, grew, I didn't grow up in the New York City region. I grew up in, you know, maybe, I don't know, like 60 miles north of here. Mm-hmm. So, but like where I grew up still had like, a, you know, a little bit, it was, it was all Italian and Irish people, but it wasn't, there wasn't really this like violent racist sort of like towny vibe that, you know, and nothing against those people, man, but like it was just different for me and there was a, a more violent sort of flavor to the Boston suburbs than I was used to at least. Oh, yeah. I mean, so Lawrence, where I grew up in, like, I, I believe it was in the 80s. So there was a huge, uh, it's, you know, it was predominantly like French, uh, Polish, a lot of Italian. Uh, and then there was a huge uh, Latin influx in the 80s. And there started to be race wars and the federal government had to come in Damn. and intervene. I mean, it was a very... And, and also because of the Massachusetts uh, really like liberal welfare healthcare wars, it, what it was perceived as like, oh, people are moving here to take advantage of laws, and they're oh, yeah. you know, and people are like setting fire to their homes to cash in on a you know insurance policies or whatever. So to the people who were like had been living there for a couple generations, they're looking at it like, oh. You know, there's African-American, uh, Latin moving in, Dominican, Puerto Rican, and they're just here taking advantage of laws. So it bred this, like, disgusting, you know, race fighting. And it it became so segmented. And it's like, you know, I was, I was talking to someone about it that you it was all mom-and-pop businesses, right? There's no chains. But you go into chains or anywhere in New York, and it's like, Everyone's working there, right? Well, these Italians aren't hiring the Mexican guy, the Dominican guy to do shit. So what do they have to do? They have to start their own businesses. So it just starts these yeah. bunkers of, sure. you know, an animosity. And I don't know. It was a really, I mean, growing up there, it was so much more pronounced than even Boston, which I felt was awful too, you know, and, uh, and then moving to New Hampshire, towards high school, then it was even crazier because there you can just wear the racism. You can wear the hate and you can say homophobic things or racist things in school. It's not a big deal. Really? You know, I mean like Exeter, New Hampshire was where the KKK was headed in the North for many, many years. And we're not talking, I mean, this is like a couple, this is like a decade removed from when I went to high school. I started in 1989. So this was like, I thought that place was bad, and then I go there. I start high school in 1989, and it looked like dazed and confused. And I'm like, what the fuck is this place? And it was, you know, I'm not saying I was the most progressive kid. I mean, I'm, I had my dumb beliefs, but I just knew this was like, it was a fighting culture. It was a violent culture. It wasn't progressive, and I, I always felt off, which is, you know, what made me gravitate towards anything that was not that. You know. Damn. Yeah, it's um I always felt like Boston was like buried over like some, you know, Native American 
graveyard or something, man. It has just to be. It's such a bad <laughs> vibe, and I'm not. <laughs> Listen, people in Boston listening to this podcast commenting terribly. I don't think there's anyone from Boston listening to this podcast. All right, good. Well, then fuck it. (laughs) It's just got a fucking bad vibe. Like, it's always this unhappiness. And I don't know if it's like little brother shit to New York or what it is, but it's like, it's not that bad. It's a beautiful city. It really is. You should be happy as fuck. It's a safe city. (laughs) I actually um, enjoy visiting Boston because I have, you know, several friends that live up there. And for like a nice weekend, it's good to go up there. Um, you know, I really like places like Salem and, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice to, I just recently was up there. It was great. And, uh, you know, Western Mass is a totally different story. Sure. Um, you know, that's like some, the hippie sort of progressive kind of, uh, liberal vibe out there. And then you get to the hard, harder realities of, uh, the Eastern side of the state, you know, but, um, so you and I both sort of coexisted in Boston for for a period of time, and uh, right after I left, like things went, things got a little crazy, you know. Probably yeah. I read about I read about you in this article I saw. Someone sent me an article about uh, the the Yankee sucks T shirts. The Grandland thing. Yeah. So when did you leave? Like ah, uh, like ninety nine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I left like a couple years later. Um, I don't know. Where do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all. Um, what, what, what are these t-shirts all about, man? There was like back in like the late nineties, there was this, um, movement going on with these like t-shirts that were like, you know, it said Yankee sucks on it. And obviously like, well, I think like, so that thing had existed forever. Like, you know, people will say as far back as the seventies, people had made those shirts and some guys I were friends with, like the Red Sox made the playoffs in uh, 1999. And that was, you know, the first time where they felt like viable, you know, they felt they were like kind of rallying the, the city. They're like a charismatic team. And also I think Boston is very much like a European city is where the sports culture dips into the punk culture, you know, in the way that it does like Mm -hmm. fucking in, you know, England where it's like you're a fucking hooligan and you listen to Cockney rejects whatever it's like that it's very similar in that way there's a lot of parallels like I and mean, if if i'm wrong then i guess the dropkick murphys don't exist you know or slapshot <laughs> didn't exist or whatever you know so uh these guys i know saw an opportunity and i think it was really because of like you know at the apartment i lived in on uh calumet street 38 calumet no, i lived there actually and, before yeah, you guys did yeah mike lived there um we would make our own t-shirts. Like, that's how we did our shit. We never tenured in my eyes. For the most part, we made our own t-shirts there. Yeah. And when, you know that practice room on the top floor? Yep. That slap shot rehearsed there. When I, when I was living on the top floor, um, I lived there at some point in the 90s, mm-hmm. and my roommates were John LaCroix and Clevo, all yep. from 10-yard fight, and uh, some other random degenerates <laughs> that lived there. And uh, the top floor was basically a practice room. And Slapshot rehearsed there for a period of time. And um, so, yeah, that was, there was always stuff yeah, going on there. Yeah, that middle room, like where the bathroom was, that's where we would screen the first yeah. tenure fight yeah. shirts and everything. There's a long history of T-shirt making at 38 yeah. Calumet. You know, so even, it, was a, it was a T-shirt enclave. Yeah, even <laughs> even uh, on the first floor, and Rama lived there, mm-hmm. um, our mutual friend Rama Mayo ran uh, Big Wheel Recreations, which was like a fairly, I mean, they, they, they were a very pretty notable record label back then. Yeah, out, sure. I mean, at the know. drive-in and Jimmy World, like they were doing the licensing deals for that vinyl. And yeah, 
yeah. lot of people were coming through like you know a lot of those bands would have like at the drive-in they would have like a simple one color design they'd run out of shirts and rama would run off a few dozen yeah you know um so i think these guys knowing like you know, to the average person, they're just like, oh, how do you get a T-shirt made? You call someone up and you get fucked overpaying. They're yeah. like, no, we can make one for like three bucks. But also, this is like way before there were viable outlets to get your merchandise made if you're in a band. Right. So the culture that Anthony and I are both came from, most everything was done. Flyers, T-shirts, seven-inch covers, all that stuff is pretty much done on your own, like with a some bullshit like screening operation you know yeah i mean i don't want to like bore people but because i came from like a printmaking background yeah. i knew how to make well you, put, you get a screen you put emulsion on it you get a certain watt lamp you burn it okay shit it didn't come out right i gotta do it again that's another yeah. two-hour process and not uh, you know you cure the ink in an oven it was it was pretty you know if you got one of those t-shirts it probably didn't last too long you know it wasn't a a pro thing. As a matter of fact, I remember doing a run of t-shirts and then the design completely washed off. Like, I don't know, probably wasn't cured long enough or something, but I remember like hearing from people that the shirts, they washed it and they just got like a plain black t-shirt yeah. out of it at the end. <laughs> I was like, oops. They're like, oh, it was eight bucks, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I guess like coming out of that, these guys that I was living with at the time saw an opportunity that like, oh, why don't we just see what happens kind of deal. And the response was so strong, you know, that they're like, okay, next season, because then the Red Sox get knocked out of the playoffs, they're like, oh, next season we're going to sell these shirts. And then what they did was they were the first guys, and these were, you know, they're all guys in the article. I was living with uh, Ray LeMoyne, Jamie Manza, Eric Ferentz, and then this guy, Todd Wilson, who was from Albany, who uh, lived in a different house, he was living with Wes and Chris from Bridge Nine, I believe, at the time. They're like, next season we're going to sell these shirts and we're going to sell them every game. And I thought that was the craziest idea of, well, you're going to sell them when they play the Orioles and the Blue Jays and the Angels. And they're like, fuck it, yeah, it's money. And so it was kind of a cash carry situation where you're just getting a royalty from the shirt. And I was trying to get out of Boston, so I was like, well, I'm not going to invest in this, but I'll like see what's up. So you you get a bag of 25 shirts and you stand there and you hawk them, and you get your royalty off every shirt and just like selling drugs. If you lose the shirts, you're on the hook for it. You know, like like selling weed or something. And uh, you know, I'd be down there. I had like long hair at the time and a beard, and this was like not a cool thing in sports at the time. So I've had people saying all types of stuff to me like the typical guy and I'm not going to mimic an accent or repeat things that were said to me but it wasn't fun and I'd get in fights you know like well yeah also Fenway Park is like a very volatile mixture of different types of people yeah, like for example right? yeah for example some fucking genius put this like you know basically a, a, a center for sports fans to go and get wasted and get all worked up and then they on that same street, there's, like, all these, like, nightclubs, you know, filled with, like, you know, European disco dancers and, you know, chicks on cocaine and all this kind of stuff. So, and then occasionally there would be a uh, a show at one of these things mm -hmm. or a band, like, Sick of It All would play or Biohazard and, like, Unsane or something like that or Slayer, actually. Yep. 
And I remember when Slayer played on Lansdowne Street, there was like a fucking riot pretty much, man. And like there was all this like violence and people got beat up and the cops came and all this other stuff. And it wasn't really because like Slayer is like in league with Satan, but it was more of like the mixture of these like Hessians, skinheads, um, sports fans and like yeah, steroid and that was like return to clubs because that time was the uh, the cover song tour. Yeah, it was that uh, decade. Um, yeah, the one with uh, yeah with all the covers on it. Yep. I can't remember the name of that one. Undisputed attitude. Yep. Yeah. So it was like, oh, they're playing small venues yep. now, and so that's just like, I mean, that street's like a pinball machine of hate. Like yeah. it's just a bad. I mean, like you know, we would we would watch people get out, and like we would know what was going to happen because you'd see the guy and he'd have like you know like a shitty t-shirt on and a bootleg jersey over it and denim shorts and he'd like pull out a Winston and just lean back and be like burping and go Yankee sucks no matter who was playing we're like oh that dude's getting in a fight like he's just fucking you know beer burping not in a good mood this is going to be a bad look and that I mean that whole Setup was volatile, and then you had the police in that trying to. Oh yeah, let's not forget the cops. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't. I don't know. It was just. And I mean, dude. And then on top of that, my friend Zarian, he's Pakistani, and so when we were selling shirts after nine eleven, I mean, dudes were just like going in on this kid. You know, like, you know, you imagine what. I'm not stereotyping, just, we'll just say, a drunk dude with limited exposure to the world would say when he sees a Middle Eastern guy standing there selling a shirt that says Yankees suck, like, you tell me how that's going to play out. <laughs> you know, so it was, but I mean, those things were, I mean, to to qualify it, like, we were all guys from the hardcore scene, and I don't want to say we were transitioning out of hardcore, but we were like just had different interests, right? Like, it was like, I think we were all guys into different shit, but I think we were kind of out of that intense period of, like, every weekend, this is this, and, like, our bands had broken up, and, uh, I don't know, we were, we were coming down to New York a lot, and we were just had different interests. Like, I was trying to move to New York, and it was, like, it started to be this thing of, like, gambling, going out, you know, you get a bunch of kids and you put a bunch of cash in their pocket, 20-year-olds, every night, and it's more cash they'd ever seen in one night. Where Some of these kids are, as, you know, as young as, like, 16 years old, and then you start getting, like, $1,000 dice games going, and pharmaceutical drugs are readily available because they're not regulated yet, and it's like, it gets wild, you know? And I think that's a very common thing when kids kind of get out of the straight edge thing they kind of test where they could go but i think to add the capital to it oh man it's, it's a fucking yeah it's like dynamite man it's like tnt you know and, and for me like there's i mean it's weird like when i lived in boston i wasn't aware as much of like the twisted village kind of scene of like there's like a little you know these little enclaves of like cool artier rock like i'd gone to shows in davis square that were a little more like smaller thing or whatever but you know I'm in I'm like about this time about my mid-twenties and I'm trying to get out of this scene and it's like well where do you go like there's the dive bar there's the bar that has like the mod night there's the euro clubs 
Uh, there's not like it wasn't like these pockets of like I'm going to go to the indie rock bar. I'm going to go to the you know the place where the metal guys hang out. It still wasn't. Uh, there, there weren't that those type of outlets in Boston. It wasn't like a youth culture thing. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with the like-minded people. So you just kind of fucking, you go with it and you wild out, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, also it's like if you, you know, you're in, into hardcore and punk, and then you just you're just used to behaving a certain way that doesn't necessarily gel with like the indie rockers, really. Like you want like a certain level of, you just you're just different. You know what I mean? It's like. You know, it's in some ways you've seen things that they can't really identify with, and vice versa. And like, I don't know, it's it's kind of a big jump when you're in your twenties to be going to like hardcore shows and being in the pit and doing all this stuff, and then suddenly you're you're going to see like uh, I don't know, Galaxy Five Hundred or something like that. Yeah. It's like a totally different thing, you know. I mean, it would be funny because when I would go like. You know, like, one of my best friends growing up was into more, like, this is, like, the early 90s, was into, like, Sebado and stuff like that. And I would go to shows with him. And, like, so I got into other shit, too, right? Or whatever whatever type of stuff was going down. Like, I would just check out stuff. And especially living in Boston, there were so many venues. Yeah. There was just, like, something to do, especially when you don't drink. I'm like, all right, I'll go. There's a band called Supergrass playing. It's three bucks. Like, I'll check it out, you know, on their first tour. Um you know, whatever, Luna, it's like, you just go check things out. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I would go there and I, I would feel like I was like the drug dealer or something, <laughs> you know, yeah. like yeah. you like stand out like the drug dealer. Yeah, you stand out. Exactly. You know? Like I wasn't going to put on like a black pocket tee and black jeans and boots and be like, no, I'm shellac guy. You know, it's like you go how you are and you yeah. just feel almost like, you know, like I remember going to a man or Astro man show and I'm like, Dude, I'm the only one here who can run a mile, no problem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know totally. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. And that was also because, like, I was in a skating or whatever, and, like, I was just, like, a physical kid. But it was, like, I don't know. It wasn't the kind of place where you had a lot of outlets. You're like, oh, now I'm going to get into this. Like, it wasn't like there was a fucking foodie scene. Like, now I'm a foodie. You know, this is, like... But also, it's, like, you know, maintaining your own identity is important, too. Um, you know... It, Sure. Sort of like being these little cliques and everything, and you know, it's it's always every every scene, every every type of thing you want to do. There's a clique involved in it. You know, the coffee scene. There's like a clique of like certain people. You know, the people who run restaurants in this neighborhood. They're all like a clique of those people, and sure. they talk shit about each other. And they, you know, some people get along, some people don't. And you know, music too. It's like the indie rock scene. There's like a little clique of people who know each other from working at the record store or whatever. You know, and in hardcore, it's like people who, who see each other at shows, you know, or playing bands together and all that. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's a learning thing, man, I guess. Like when you're you're that young and you're coming out of something that you uh, was very important to you and you just not so much outgrowing it, but expanding into other things. Like you probably still love, like we were talking before we started the podcast. Yeah, we we're talking about, you know. Like, I don't know, some records that hold up and some records that don't. I mean, that's always going to be part of, like, who you are, though, even though you get into, like, all this other sh shit, you know? Well, like, I mean, one key thing when you start getting into other shit is, like, I don't want to turn it, like, this way, but, like, when you start getting into drugs, <laughs> you meet people who are into drugs. Yeah. You're going to meet these people. Absolutely. You know? And it's, like, you know, I'll just, I'll just remember, like, I always had a lot of records and a lot of CDs or whatever, 
of all different shit. And uh, I remember when I started smoking weed, I was like, I'm going to be in this room for a long fucking time. <laughs> you know, because yeah. like, all of a sudden you think you're hearing it different. Like, well, you are, though. Yeah. Because it's like when you take some sort of like, uh, you know, some some you know drugs or whatever weed mushrooms or whatever your your sensor your your consciousness is altered so you are experiencing everything differently you know? yeah I'm like I'm like how the fuck did I listen to this can record like dead sober before and now I'm like playing Mother Sky over and yeah. over or something and you're hearing you know? it differently and uh but yeah like that period like I don't think it was like you know none of these guys were a certain type of person. They're like, you know, it's like one dude's into the dead, one dude's into like rap metal. It was just this fucking hodgepodge of dudes on ten all the time, and you you suddenly you realize you're like, oh, I'm just with people on ten. Yeah, this isn't a fucking thing, you know. Like sometimes I go off and do my own thing, like oh, I'm gonna go see this band, or oh, I'm gonna go to the art museum, and then you're just kind of on your own, but you're you're in this thing that anyone can be a part of, and it's just fucking in the red. <laughs> and that's a dangerous spot to be in, and it's, like, dark and weird, and there's a reason why we had a demolition party for that apartment and why I left. It was... So that what happened there? I mean, because I know 38 Calumet was, like, always been destroyed by people. The plumbing was all fucked up from, like, whatever. And there was always, like phases and eras of destruction that went on in that building. So what was this demolition party you guys had? Well, there there came a point where everyone realized, like, this wasn't going to happen. Like, it's over, Rocky. <laughs> you know, like, and uh, so just quick backstory. We John LaCroix and I were looking for an apartment, and I think this was 1995. We lived on Hillside Street. They were looking for a new spot, or it might have been fall of 94. And, like, so what they would do in Boston, it's not like New York where you actually have renter's rights. They just shove you with some sketchy realtor, and they just take you to a shithole and say, how much can you pay? Yeah. Basically, Basically is what yeah. happens. And then you sign a lease, and then you have no rights, and your landlord comes into your apartment, and, like, you can try to fight it, and you have no rent control. So we went into this place. It was the top two floors of this building. I swear it was like a thousand bucks and there was a Somalian family living there. Yeah, that's right. In the, yep, Dude, so that. many people They were the like place. naked too a lot, a lot of the times. And they were just like, oh, don't worry, they'll be out of here. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, I'm not trying to like displace someone. Yeah. So, I don't know, we took over this place that was two floors with mad people and it just became like a rotating cast and then Rama took over the first floor and then he was running Big Wheel out of there and there was, you know, that was like a crash pad for bands and everything. Um, I met some dude who wrote it for the Pixies. He alleged that the, he alleges that the Pixies live there. Who the fuck knows? But it's like pre- I mean, they did live in Roxbury. But it's like pretty funny the history of this place. Like I think all of the you know well, every, actually, every band passed through there. The quick aside, you know, the Hydrahead House was right up the street mm-hmm. on Hillside, yeah, yeah. and that used to be Tang Records. Oh, I didn't know that used to be Tang. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, like I would go over like because I was like into generic term but I, I mean just blanket term like stoner shit and I was probably the only dude straight edge dude that like could go over there and listen to, like Goat Snake or something well you know Turner was straight edge too <laughs> yeah, for a long time still at the time he, yeah, yeah. yeah so, I mean, so we would like vibe out and listen like but I, he wasn't like bringing Sweet Pete over there no, to no, listen no, to yeah, Goat Snake true. test press yeah. you know <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Sweet Pete really knew who Goat Snake was though but, <laughs> but yeah uh, but yeah I mean and then yeah what like Bridge Nine was around there and there was like 
Oh, there's a bunch of labels. Yeah, it was. Out of that. It was, like I said, it was an interesting time, and I think that it could, like Mission, that this area that we're talking about is Mission Hill, and it's like sort of, it wasn't as dangerous as it was in the early 90s, but it was sure. still kind of a sketchy neighborhood. Like the first time I was at, I went to Mission Hill in like 93 or 94, I think. And it was like pretty buck wild there. Mm-hmm. There was like yeah, people getting, getting mugged there, and like, yeah. yeah, like all kinds of violence was going on. Like it was scary, you know, I, you know, going down to the pizza shop, you know, was, was, was an ordeal. And then around the time frame that we're talking about, it was start, it was still dangerous. There was still all kinds of stuff, all kinds of negative stuff going on, but also, uh, you know, a lot of type of band people and like people from art school are living there. So yeah, I mean, like I always tell people, I learned how to gentrify a neighborhood perfectly by that <laughs> experiment. I'm like, oh, I know how you do it. You get all the bands to go there. Yeah. You throw parties, and then someone opens up a coffee house and the rent goes up. I get it. Like that's. <laughs> I haven't been there probably since I since the last day I lived at 38 Calumet. So I don't I don't know what it's like now. Oh, there's like a TGI Fridays. Like basically, Harvard released. There was that big kind of like restricted part at the top of the hill. Yeah. And they released that. They were protecting it for, they were going to do something. And then that all got developed. And I believe there's a gap, but there's definitely a TGI Fridays. It's like oh, super wow. nice. There's Damn. no more Roscoe drug. Like, oh, no way. It's like a desirable. Huh. We, I mean, this is fucked up. I was there a couple years ago with Ray. And we were driving up. Calumet Street, which was a one-way at the time, and this dude almost hit us because now it's a two-way. Now it's a two-way, huh? And we pulled over to 38, which they painted pink now. Wow. We knocked on the door, and we asked the chicks on the first floor, what do you guys pay for this place? Like, what? Like, no, we used to live here. Like, we, who the fuck does this shit? Stop. <laughs> right? Hey, how much you pay for this place? You, you know, know like, <laughs> on some fucking Soprano shit or something, they're like... <laughs> Oh, it's pretty reasonable, like three grand. Oh. Like three grand? Like we paid like a G for I don't, four beds. If, if the rent ever got paid, man. I mean, <laughs> seriously, dude. When I lived there, we were always on the verge of getting evicted, you know? And there was like, at the time, the landlord or manager was this dude looked like Rob Halford, sort of, that would yeah, come Leo. around. That Leo, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, looked like, he looked like Rob Halford if he was like a landlord in Boston. And he was always threatening to throw us out, man. And there was always like, Things would get broken in the hallway, and the, the railings would get smashed. And I don't know if we ever really consistently paid rent there. No, I mean, like, laid on rent, switching utilities to fake names. Like, you know, apologies, Ray Capo, but you have so many bills. that <laughs> <laughs> so many phone bills in your name. They're just dumb shit. Like, but the, the end, end, it was like, it just started getting volatile because our place started to become... You know, because everything closed in Boston at 2, if not before. And it just started to become an after-hours party. Yeah. And it was like, this is when Gibby was doing all his, like, parties and shit. Oh, like, yeah, okay. Yep. Make-up clubs mm-hmm. popping off. And it was like, and then, you know, there was this punk scene in Boston with, like, the Unseen and stuff like that. And that kind of got integrated in the whole thing. And it was just this weird crossover of, like, oh, wait, everyone can just hang out and be maniacs. And, like, our place was, like... You can go there and party. You can go there and gamble. If you want to dip into a room and hook up with someone, you can do that too. <laughs> you know, it's like a bad, you know, just just bring some booze or something. <laughs> you know, and it was like, you know, people had like bunk beds. It was total like Tyler Durden shit. Like it was not, you know, like I said this in the, I guess in the Grantland thing, like the toilet really was just like the, 
the way you flushed it was you pulled a shoestring because the handle broke, and it was like, who's going to fix that? You know, it's just like animal shit. Like, we stopped cooking because there was no more dishes. <laughs> it was, you know, we had a dude living in the pantry. Like, Oh, actually, that was there, there's a long history of guys living in the pantry. Yeah, like yeah. lived in the ja- pantry. Yeah, Sean, when I lived there, there was a dude living in the pantry. So That's funny. I mean, it was getting to the point where... You know, sometimes someone would just show up, open the door, and just swing at someone. Like, fights were starting. Or, like, the the delivery man from Food Walk would come in and roll dice with us. And then he'd get, like, asked out and get all angry because we, like, we won a couple hundred bucks off him. And, like, it was just... I mean, it was, like, an, just a fucking epicenter of bad vibes. Like, And also, this is when they started building frat houses. Like, frat houses started taking over. Wow, that, so, was, that was something that wasn't around yeah, when I lived up so there. Yeah, so probably right after you left, like, yeah. fra- you know, because you get those places cheap. So there's one next to us, and I remember we would just hang on the porch and, like, smoke and just do whatever, like, drink on the porch, and these there were these hippie hacker dudes that lived above us. They were, like, mad tech dudes, and they are like, Grateful Dead guys. They're probably all rich. They probably own the biggest startups in the world now. And uh, they had, like, nice bikes, and they would, you know have them stuck locked on the uh the porch so we're like hanging out and, like these frat dudes start talking shit and like i'm sure we talk shit back or whatever like fuck you and we just went back in the apartment and so on that first floor you could see out like perfectly on the porch and they like went up in some like red bull rage like what and they just started fucking up the bikes oh man and i remember Big E was living crashing there at the time like open up the window like it was just this one little window and he goes oh my god you guys ruined not our bikes <laughs> and just shut the thing we just start dying but man fuck i mean those dudes like those hippie guys bikes got fucking shredded but we were just like ah, whatever uh, turn on mtv or just whatever <laughs> fucking let's let's watch zoolander again <laughs> but to get back to the demolition thing i mean it definitely it started getting, like, these dudes had this warehouse where they are pumping out shirts in uh, Chelsea, I believe. And, you know, they had, like, all, there was just so many people involved. And everyone was pretty strung out. There were these two juicehead guys from Revere that were working for them. Fucking steroids in Revere? I don't. I don't believe that. Yeah, no, it's a shocker, right? <laughs> it's a shocker. They were like the dudes who wear the bandana like up on their head with like the Jersey Shore spike. It was this dude Nate Yaw dude and this guy Toby, and they were always on some like pillhead shit, like conspiracy <laughs> shit, like yo guy, like he ripped us off, like dude, fucking, you know, like I'll tell you one thing that was real funny, like this this one dude uh, Nate Yaw dude. Before we talk about the demolition party, like he, they were fine. They were just fucking. Yahoo's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and we're driving one time. Me and me and Nate Yah, dude, we're going to pick up T-shirts at this spot in Austin. And he's got like the fucking orange tan and oh, like yeah. the whole kit, yep. you know. And like all his money from the T-shirt thing is going back into like body upgrades yeah, just and like shit. Fucking D-ball and shit, yeah. man. Yeah, totally, man. And he's like, he's like, he had this fucking amazing moment of clarity. He's like, <laughs> dude, do you think I'm a loser? <laughs> And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I got fucking muscles. Bitches want me. I got fucking good jewelry. And he's like, but do you think muscles are, like, gay? And I was like, what do you mean, man? He's like, you think they're, like, fucking losery? Like, I couldn't wear your clothes with these muscles. And I was like, nah, it's just not my thing, man. Like, trying to, like, 
I'm like, dude, I feel like I just like rapped on the glass of like this hey. dude's life kind of shit, you know? Did the guy like, you know, what happened to him now, man? Is he, you know? Hopefully not dead. Is he but a probably yoga the, teacher or something like that? Yeah, maybe? he might like own a gastro pub or something, <laughs> be a fucking beardo. But that was like a weird look. I'm like, whoa, he just realized that maybe muscles aren't cool. And it was like, I don't know, man, just fucking, you know what? Just turn that disturbed CD up. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> but so these are, I mean, these are the type of people we're rolling with. And like a lot of weird, like restaurant guys and like this fucking sketchball owned a catering club and like just a, a catering business, just like fucking cokeheads and wayward chicks from the suburbs coming in and just this whole mishmash of fucking weirdos and like scalpers and at some point it was just I'm just like I'm fucking out of here I'm moving to New York I got a I got a crib and they're like alright fucking demolition party <laughs> and it was like like th- th- I remember they were like yeah you know what we're raising your rent well th- this was the linchpin they were like we're raising your rent some astronomical shit and we're like oh yeah why'd you tell us that before we pay our last month like fuck off so then it was on like weekend long and it I'm not lying man like this one dude Cho he had this small bedroom it was like not a bedroom and I think I think Lefty Dave lived in that version on the top floor or maybe EK okay <clears throat> but it was like a fake fakest bedroom wait was it the one at the end of the hall that was like just like a window yeah I, I, lived, yeah. In, I lived in there briefly okay yeah. so yeah. there's that version <laughs> on the first floor and uh we realized there were so many people there and that dude Cho was like you know what? I don't want to implicate him. He's got a very respectable job, but he's a very respectable guy. He Allegedly. Like, yeah. He didn't want to take part in this, so he designated <laughs> his room the second bathroom. Oh, man. So, I mean, it's just like fucking people seriously shitting and pissing in just a room for the weekend, like whatever. And then Elio management rolled by and they're like, it's the first, like the first of the Sunday. You got to be out of here. We're like, all right. And we just pushed everything out of the windows. We're like, later. They're like, you're not getting your security back. Oh, oh really? Oh, really? <laughs> All right. Well, there's like eight pounds of human shit. <laughs> oh, Jesus. You know, nothing works here. Like, oh, rats. Like, I don't get like $130 back. Like, <laughs> I just threw the best party of my life for 130 bucks. I think I'm okay with it. <laughs> but, I mean, that place was so chaotic that I moved to New York to feel calm. If you can contextualize that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty insane, really. You know, coming down here to feel calm. Because this is definitely the opposite of calm. Yeah, and this so I'm, was... I'm pretty calm, though, honestly. So I'm know. chill now. I mean, this was still, like, months after 9-11, too. So yeah, things was, are definitely tense down here. There's, like, a bizarre, like, vibe down in this area around that time. But I mean, then again, I, people are oddly cool with each other. That's all That's all changed now, but, like... Well, I like, think that's why... I'm not going to say there was a lot of cool art. I don't know how much that happened that you can look back on that's like a um, if there's a record of that stuff and I don't mean necessarily albums I just mean as a whole I don't know how much was produced during that time that you can look back on that tells a story of how cool that time was but I felt like there was still this hangover of you know what everyone got a taste of something totally different and nothing mattered and it was like now it's commonplace, but it was like the indie rock kid at the hip hop club, the fucking sketchy, um, 
drug dealer dude who's always in the corner. Now he's just rapping out with people. Everything's just bleeding over. Like, you know, let's live in every different borough. All the music styles are crossing over. You know, like the fucking liars got signed to a major label. Like, I mean, think of all the bands that like got signed. I'm not saying that I'm not on some conspiracy shit, but I'm just saying like the, there was a, a very big focus on New York City. And all of a sudden it's like every band signed. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Like there's all this shit happening. You know, I remember watching Fourth of July fireworks while like Dead Meadows playing on a roof. Like just it was like the beginning of these like sponsored events where it was like drink for free shit. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, like three, four parties with motherfucker, Larry T, Electric Clash is still kind of happening. Um, and it was just like wild style, you know, like in that hip hop was crossing over into everything. And I think it was like a time in New York where no one gave a fuck and people were, you know, like I said, prescription drug thing hadn't hit New York yet as hard. It was still just still cocaine cowboy style. But now it's like, there's an influx of all these people bringing in whatever, like hydrocodones and fucking OCs. And like, you know, I remember people asking me what a pill was because I was from Massachusetts. <laughs> like I'm fucking Google. Like, you know what that is, right? Should I take that? Like just finding shit on the floor at Lit. Oh, shit. Like, and, but there was, I don't know. There was a lot of rad stuff happening. There was a lot of cool art. And, you know, I don't even necessarily know if, you know, anyone's going to look back and be like, oh, Chick, 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 we're the greatest band in the world. No disrespect to Chick, Chick, Chick. But I thought it was cool that that was something that people were talking about for a minute. That there was just, it was just, uh, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think shortly after that, like Interpol and bands like that were like, you know, like... Yeah, Rapture. Rapture, I mean, yeah. Think of Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Like, yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, yeah. I mean, again, I'm going to go back. Someone actually was like, oh, there's this new thing happening in New York. We can make money off the liars because that's how a major label works, right? That's not yeah, like it's not that they're creative. not doing Curtis. They're yeah. not doing cool points. No, they're like, oh yeah, this will be viable. This will work. You know, it's like you know, even even Interpol. I find it odd. I mean, it's I like them, but I wouldn't as a if I had a a job as a record exec, I would never pick them to be a band that would ever have any kind of major success. Sure, they're not like a singles. There's no band. fucking chorus, man, in most of their songs. Yeah, they're like New Order. New Order and have choruses. No, <laughs> yeah. But that's what I mean. Like, yeah. like yeah, Interpol could be a big independent band, but they're like, I think they fucking played at Madison Square Garden or something like that, mm -hmm. like the last time, a couple of years ago, and they toured. That's insane. Yeah. It's, I mean, that was a nuts... That was just a weird time because I think when the strokes blew up, it was like, I mean, it was, I, and I've written about this and I do believe this, man, that like, and I think the world's still this way. Like, I didn't, you know, and I'm, I'm huge, huge disclaimer because I'm very sensitive about this. I didn't live in New York when this happened, but everyone in the United States and probably the world was focused on New York. And I could tell you for sure that when, the Strokes were already a thing, and then they're getting big, and they are kind of this beacon of old New York, right? They sound, you know, they're... Yeah, they have like a sort of, like, a, you know, a sound that's like a little dated, you know, it's like a, a retro vibe to them, you know? And, and it's like, do I want to listen to that, or do I want to listen to fucking 
the future. It's like, no, let's just think about old New And all of a sudden, they somehow become, like, in the pantheon of, like, television or some shit in a weird way. And it's like, it's it makes total sense that it's like, ooh, I just... Retro's good. Let's just keep going back. Breakdancing school. Now I want to wear old sneakers. Now I want to have an old haircut. And it's like, no one wants to progress past this event because it's just safer to stay behind. Well, yeah, because for the first time ever, you know, there's there was a period of time where people thought it was going to be like Israel over here, where people were mm-hmm. going to get blown up on a regular basis, you know? So, yeah, you know, having been here when that happened, it was scary, you know, especially since you drive over, like, you know, the Verrazano Bridge, and there was, like, smoke coming out of that crater for, like, mm-hmm. weeks afterwards, you know, and it was terrifying, like, that understanding that there was such a massive loss of life, you know, in, in one day, you know, and, you know, it was easy to sort of not think about the future. So, yeah, I think there might be some plausibility to what you were saying. You well, know? I was listening to uh, Craig Finn on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, right? And it's podcast day, so we should talk about <laughs> podcasts. But, uh, you know, he was saying, he was talking about that kind of like that, that period right after 9-11 of yeah. like just everything being wild style and I'm you know like what was it like for you being here did you hold up or were you like what was your experience well for those couple of days um, I actually was in New Jersey when it happened okay. so I couldn't even get back home I had to like right. all the bridges were closed you know cell phones you know were, were out I couldn't contact anyone uh, in the city uh, I actually drove to my parents' house, and they live, they live, like, outside the city, like, you know, 50 or 60 miles away. But I had to drive through New Jersey, up New York Thruway, to the Bear Mountain Bridge, <laughs> and then down into, into like, towards Westchester. And uh, and I stayed there, you know, for a couple yeah. of days, and then things loosened up. And then coming back into the city after that, it was, like, you know, a very uh, eerie feeling when parts of the city are still shut down, like in the downtown area, and then the visual impact of not having that that monument there, like that landmark, you know. And um, like I said, during that period of time, I was driving back and forth across Staten Island to Jersey, and uh, routinely, I would get stopped all the time because I was driving a van. I was driving a white van. So routinely, I would get pulled over, and, you know, once they figured out that there was nothing in the van and I was just some regular guy that let me go. And uh, there was a very paranoid vibe because every time there was like this tension because you thought something else was going to happen like immediately, mm-hmm. you know. And then in certain circles, there was like this idea that there was uh, information being concealed, you know, mm-hmm. that something like this happened in other parts of the country. And then a year later, you know, all the conspiracy theories come out, you know, and the films and all this other yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah, being sold on, like, the subway platforms. and Yeah. I mean, I just remember, like, I think when they first were letting people come back in New York, you know, my Ray's girlfriend was living down here, and we were coming down here all the time in a fucking white van from yeah. Boston. Yeah, out-of-state place. You know, yep. and how difficult it was. And we were dumb enough to be transporting drugs down because people were like, <laughs> we can't get weed. And we were, like, on some, like, fuck, like we're fucking patriots. Like, we're going to bring people weed. You know, people are so, like, we're on some, like, moral shit. We weren't even, like, selling it or nothing, you know? Like, it wasn't about that. It was just, like, oh, my God. And, like, I did I remember, like, bolting around 
with like a bullshit flip phone, bolting around the Lower East Side, just like hitting up everyone I knew who lived in New York City on some check-in shit. Probably that, I guess that October. Yeah. Of just like okay. yeah. showing up at bars. Like I'm at Mona's. I'm at fucking Brownies, or I don't know if it was Hi-Fi yet. It was probably still Brownies. Yeah, it was still Brownies for a while. Like, I think back then it was still library brownies. and just bringing people like little bags of weed that like. Some girl I dated, some fucking guy I know, just like on some like help out shit. And it was like, it was just, it was just fucking trip out, you know? And I don't know, like I've, I had been hanging out in New York before then and I saw like just even the way people's attitudes were, you know, even just how like Williamsburg changed after that. Cause even Williamsburg was just still kind of like the deli. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was like, nothing much. There I mean, was nothing much. It was still, you know, I mean, it, it was like, uh, I mean, Williamsburg started becoming something in the '90s. Like sure. that's when it was probably really cool to live there. But um, the way I see it too is like, nine eleven get, enabled the jackboot mentality to like lock down the city and turn it into what it is now, which is like a fucking, you know. Rich, rich person's paradise, really, you know? Pretty much. I mean, I mean, it was funny. Like, I was, like, trying to explain to someone, like, if you go to Bedford Avenue on the weekend, no one there lives there. And it's just, I'm like, I couldn't fathom, like, because, you know, knowing how advertising works, how anyone would think this is cool or this is, like, something that should be marketed. Well, it's to, a commodity now you know? because, I mean, this is the thing. It's like when I first, you know, moved here, um, you know, Williamsburg was a place where, like, it was, Williamsburg to me was always a little annoying, you know what I mean? Because there was, like, I would go down there, there weren't really people that I could necessarily relate to. However, I knew that there was some thread that connected me to them, because we both, maybe we played music, or maybe there was some interest in films or whatever, and there used to be real life, that video store. Yeah. You know, I had a membership there and, you know, I'd go in there and, and rent some cool movies or whatever. There was like some like creative element there that I knew that on some very, very common denominator, there would be some something common with these people. Mm -hmm. But now it's just like, you know, middle management lives there now. You know, it's like it, it not, that's all gone. As a matter of fact, verb, that coffee shop, it's gone. Yeah. And that's that hung in there for a long, long time. Yeah, like Homeboy from TV on the radio worked there till like the end. And yeah. it was like a staple. Like he's going to be there in his pirate shirt, and yep. that's like a thing. Yeah, that place is gone. Oh. Like, uh, you know, just, I mean, there, there used to be on North 6th Street, there was like the, the venue, North 6th. Mm -hmm. And across from that was this place called the Sweetwater, which was like, and I mean, that end of North 6th Street was desolate. There was like nothing going on down there, you know? Yeah. There was a couple that bar where it was like a kind of like a like a dirt bag like punk metal you know hangout good jukebox you know now it's like some fucking you can get like uh, I don't know like clams casino there or something like that oh, or, yeah. like a kale salad or whatever it's I mean like I, when I first started coming down like my friend Sergey lived off the Bedford stop in this warehouse in like the late nineties and it's like. You weren't fucking with South Williamsburg, especially like no, that dangerous. bridge. Like yeah. you just weren't fucking with that area. And so, like, I had that in my brain. So when I started coming down here, and then when I was looking at apartments and stuff, like I probably could have got the cheapest spot. And I'm like, no way, you nuts, man! Like I'm not living on South Fork. No, no way. Yeah, there was. I remember there was like there was like 
for a few months there were dudes with machetes like cutting people up down there. Yeah. And uh and that was like, well, I'm fucking stay away from there, that's for sure. But now it's like every it's like the rest of this part of Brooklyn. It's like there's all these cool restaurants and, you know, people hanging out and uh the same thing, man. It's like I feel like you're not really living where you think you're living, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. these these people come into town and cool, you have this thing, but this isn't really what you think it is. What you think it is actually happened 10 years ago. And you probably sure. wouldn't want to hang in that in that sort of vibration 10 years ago. So there's a lot of like weird perception going on that's that's not very accurate and uh you know, and primarily it's just a way to get more money out of people and pay these higher rents and everything, you know, and sell products to people and all this other stuff. But but yeah, I don't even fuck with Williamsburg anymore, man. There's no reason for me to go there. Except to go to this movie theater down there, Nighthawk. Yeah, Nighthawk's is cool. great. It's, I don't know, I mean, it's like the the East Village I was discovering in the early 90s was not what I thought it was. And, you know, everyone, everyone a generation before, like, you know, I've heard people say, well, you're not a New Yorker if you didn't live here in 9-11. You're not a New Yorker if you didn't live here in the 80s. You're not a New Yorker if you didn't live here in the 70s. It's like, no, you know what? If you pay... $5,000 a month to live in your condo, you certainly are a New Yorker and your experience is what it is. Yeah. And it's like, it might be a Disneyland experience, but that's what it is. And it's like, also like, I'm not on some like trailblazer shit where I need to find the new shit. No. I'm not like, oh, I'm going to make East New York. No way. What's out there? No. You know, like, you know, I'm also a 40 year old man. So I'm yeah, dude, like we're, we're like adults, you know, I don't need to like, live in an area where I got to worry about people breaking into my car every night, you know? Like, I don't, I don't need that shit. I don't need to, like, feel like I got to, like, defend myself when I come out of the subway, you know, to go to walk to my apartment. You know, that shit, like, that, those days are over for me, at least. But, yeah, with that with that in mind, though, there's, like, you're going to, you got to better be able to come up with that rent every month, though, man, if you want to live, it's, not live in those areas. It's nuts. I mean, I don't know. I, I just don't know what the future of this city is and I think I think it's really tough to predict. I feel like you know there it's if you if you can make living out in Rockaway cool and that was not possible. Like they tried to do that what in the fifties? Yeah. You know, and like and then they started cutting those houses in half to make the highways out there. Mm-hmm. You know, which is like there's still a couple homes out there that you can see are blatantly cut in half. Yeah. And it's like that was supposed to be the Hamptons for the rich people in Manhattan in the in the forties and fifties and that didn't pop off. But now, the Rockaways are the coolest shit, and it's like, I don't know, fucking, doesn't, like, Mac DeMarco live out there or some shit? It's like, come on, man. Well, they tried to like, do that at Coney Island, too. There's, like, this big pro- project going on at Coney Island, so maybe that, that'll become the new Rockaways. Because well, it is kind of cool. The city just reclaimed same, all yeah. those, uh, do you see that? What's that? The city, there's basically tons of beachfront property and uh, empty lots that have been vacant for so long that the city's never done this in their history where they're cl- de Blasio is like, nope, we're actually going to develop that. Oh. So, who, I mean, I'm sure there's obviously guidelines of it has to be affordable housing or whatever. Yeah. But they're going to hyper-develop that too. And it's like, if you're off a train, like you're off a train at Coney Island. Like, yeah, you're on the F train there. You're at the end of the line, you know, and you then the F train's a decent train to get in and out of the city, you know? I mean, I guess so long as... As virtual money keeps working, you know, as so long as like, I mean, if you really think of it, right, and like, 
whether there's an office of fucking Tidal or Spotify in New York City, that actually their commodity is nothing. They're in an, they're basically playing the stock market with music, but they don't have to succeed. Yeah. Dude on the stock market has to do some shit. Yeah. yeah. You know? They're, they either have to disappoint someone or they have to make someone a lot of money. But at the end of the day, there's this weird accountability to it and there's a quant- you can quantify it. Right. It's like streaming music. I always hear, you know, it's like it's, if that can happen and employ people and pay people better than musicians, then, I mean, that's just one part of virtual money in the city. Then I don't see the end of it, you know, and like. Maybe this is a total tangent, but I was thinking about this recently. Is there was this debate because that figure came out about how viable vinyl sales were versus streaming uh, media, and that vinyl is actually, even though it's a small percentage, it generated more rev- revenue than these things, which makes sense because they're not owning anything, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about it, and there was like, a, you know, people love to debate this all the time. I'm like, listen, dude, I'm not a luddite. But let me exp- let me think about let's think about it this way, right? When we were kids, if your parents paid for cable, you got MTV, right? So MTV was your premium service, right? Like right. you had the radio for free, but you did have to pay to watch music videos, and you did have to pay to watch VH1. And if you wanted to pay more, you could get Skinamax or you could get HBO. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. So, what's happening right now? I think with a lot of these services is there's all these people trying to sell you something that's already in the ether and then telling you that, oh, you don't understand the value of it. I understand it perfectly. You're selling me what's on YouTube. You're not paying these artists shit, you know? Yeah, there's like, I think we got, we got you know, because like in S- September is the uh, account, you know, there's two, you get accounted to twice. Sure. From that portion, I think I got a check for like $16.11 or something like that. Right. And yeah. whereas like old school reported like BMI, <laughs> yeah. that would have been like for those plays, if those were the oh, yeah. actual plays, you'd be looking at like sixteen grand. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly, man. So it's like I feel like the internet's your cable service now. And it's like I pay for the fucking internet. I don't need to pay for Spotify premium. I don't give a fuck. You're not offering a premium service. And then the leverage is... Yeah, but you can't get Taylor Swift's record unless you pay for this. Like, dude, that should be free. That was free on the radio. You know what I mean? Like, we're the experience isn't a premium experience. I get why you pay for HBO when The Sopranos was on, right? Yeah, but now they made it even. Now it's even more reasonable with like HBO Go, where it's like right. you don't even need to have cable. You just have an internet connection. That's yeah, it. Yeah, and you're good to go. And it's like the commodity of listening to music in a shitty compressed format on shitty speakers it's not a premium thing like it's just one component you know and it's like to hear people defending streaming media and say vinyl doesn't matter and they're like oh you just think that because you're in a hardcore it's like dude I'm not fucking 12 yeah I'm not like running out and buying a 7 inch and like this is the end of my day I'm like there's tons of music that people prefer on vinyl oh yeah definitely you know I mean you can see when you go and one of the few record stores that Exist in the, you know across the country. There's like mainstream stuff being pressed on vinyl now. You know? Sure, and it's like they wouldn't be doing that. I mean, they clearly wouldn't be doing that if there was not a buck to be made doing that. Absolutely, and and you know, the experience of something is you know I'm like listen, it's very easy to say what 
the world thinks. But I don't. If I'm 15 years old and I hear something and I want it on vinyl, I don't know what that 15 year old's thinking. And I think it's very like naive to think like, oh, no one cares about stuff how we did. Who the fuck? I don't fucking know. How the fuck do I know? You know, like maybe the kid who like buys the millionth press of Born to Run and they just think that's the raddest shit of all time, you know? I don't fucking know. Like, I think that's a pretty rad album, actually. Yeah. And, they, you know, maybe it means more to them than to, like, listen to it in some some press shit on some shitty headphones they get free with their iPhone. And, like, what? I'm going to say that's not a viable thing because it's 2% of the revenues? Sorry, like, I disagree, you know? Like, it's a... It's an entirely changing model like it's all I don't know anyone who thinks like I was saying like anyone who thinks they know what the fucking plan is then you should be in pharmaceuticals on music cause you're gonna make way more money yeah you know like dude, it's not predictive like that so you got this new book in the works um I don't have right now my main project is finding a new home for radio silence okay because basically what had happened was we had this I think because there's so many cool um, hardcore titles out now that, you know, I always said when we were doing radio sounds, people would be like, oh, another book on hardcore. I'm like, what if someone said another book on Vietnam? Like, what the fuck, dude? Like, it's just a fucking book, right? So I was like, there should be a section, right? That's a genre. You know, we're talking Japanese hardcore. Like, there's, you can do books and books on Japanese hardcore. Sure. So, you know, yeah, I mean, like, there should be sections in bookstores for all this stuff. So I think because there's so many more titles now, Radio Sounds came off its best year, and basically it sold out every copy that MTV had had. And they're just like, yeah, cool, we're done with that. Like, we don't really do books anymore. And I'm like, what? But it did... That's fucking ridiculous. Really well, man. right? And they're just like, no, nah, it's cool. They're, I mean, but they're cool. They're like, yeah, you can do whatever you want with it. Which was that's kind of cool. They're not trying really to like cool. yeah. cut, you know, shelve it because they own the fucking rights to it or something like that, you know. Yeah, they were just like, this is just something we're phasing out. So I'm trying to find a new home for that to maybe just do a hardcover. I mean, it would be rad to because we own international rights to do translations. Um, that's killer. That's that's that, and then as far as I'm um, editing a book for. A site called Jankum. It's a skateboard site that's like, it's grown in just five years from uh, the guy Ian who started it, who was just like, this, there's nothing in skateboarding media that's talking to me. I'm going to start my own thing. And it's become really influential and it's really freeform. And, you know, he's, he's a guy who's just like, there's no rules, like rip it up, just do whatever you want. So I'm helping them do their first book. Um, and I'm excited about that to be in, you know, I'll, working with people, I just, I love collaborative things, but to try to, like, guide the narrative of this book and convey what I think's great about this thing, where I think it's just culturally relevant, because they're the first guys to do an interview with a transgender skateboarder. First guys to do an interview with uh, anyone openly gay in skateboarding. First guys to, to kind of give credence to these guys in skateboarding who aren't superstars and are kids who have a YouTube following and they're just like kids who are just like any town USA where it's like well maybe you're an interesting person and uh, I think it's important especially because skateboarding is being pitched to the Olympics in, in 
2020 and it's going to happen because it has all the backing, that there's the other side of this world showing, like, yeah, there's the sports side and then there's the lifestyle side. And skateboarding's way backwards. It's insane. You know, like... What, what do you mean by backwards? Um, as, far as, like, as far as a culture, like, the... All the graphics are still super misogynistic. Okay. Homophobia is no big deal. Yeah. Um, it's still, for as big as it is, it's not under the microscope because it's so self-contained even though it's on TV. Because the part that's on TV is, like, very curated. And it's like, these are the athletes, and then everything else, who cares? And it's like, there's more girls skateboarding than ever, and there's more female brands, female-owned brands than ever, and... They're a segment of skateboarding that's treated as a separate segment. So it's still not there yet. It's not culturally integrated. Um, so I think it's really important for there to be a voice for that. And, I, and that's why I was excited to be brought on. So that's that. this site is kind of like going more in that sort of direction. You know? Yeah. Oh, like cool. they're, What's that address again? What's the site? It's again? called uh, Jenkum Mag. Okay. And, you know, I think... It's something that you can read just like in the way that people read Big Brother or whatever, you know, like it's, you know, it's, it's a fun site and it's not, I mean, there's, there's cool content on there that I think people just dig anyways, but I think it's important to have a record of breakthrough things that are happening and stuff that's like exposing this culture. And, uh, so I'm working on that and then, you know, I don't. I don't know what the next book will be. I want to get away from doing art books and I want to, you know, just do more, more just pure like novel style stuff. Like but fictional stuff or I don't know. maybe or like, you know, fiction a little bit based on experience, you know, um, more like a Raymond Carver or something like that. But, you know, it's a, it's a tough route because I want to work within the system of doing books. I don't want to self publish. Yeah. You know, because I want, or if I self-published, I'd want to work with a real editor who can. Yeah, you, you need to have, it's like putting out records on your own. You actually need this, like, infrastructure to, to do a quality product, you know. Yeah, and Maybe. I don't, you know, I don't want it to be contained to just the people I know might be interested in it. Yeah, like, you want, it's to, like, want anyone to find out about it. You want to have some PR behind it and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. That's Although, that being said, I did have an idea of a... Uh, I had a title, and I always think, like, sometimes when you have the title, it might be rad. Is like, fucking anyone steal this because I'm probably not going to do it. Not So Fast, a book about all the outlier punk bands. Like, starting with Flipper and No Trend, and then you kind of get into, like, whether it's, like, the Amrep thing or, like, Germbox or Dazzling Killman. Like, all this stuff is really fucking weird, highly undocumented, visually interesting Compelling, like you said, like Craw, the lyrics are never published, right? Not until this new reissue. You need to get. Which everyone, once again, needs to get picked that up, man. 99, I'm going to shill it right now. 99 bucks, six LPs. Like, that's cheap with a book. That's fucking amazing. But I, I defy anyone to come up with a better deal yeah. than that. But I don't know. I thought that was rad because the, the guys who were going to, you know, Mel, Melvin's a great example. Yeah. You know? And I thought Not So Fast is a good fucking, that's a gimme title. And it'd be cool to, like, I think those bands all had really cool aesthetics. And I'm like, man, you could really just do a nice vanity coffee table book of all this ephemera 
you know. But that's I mean, that's probably a that'd be a five year deal. I would do it, but I think it would be tight. <laughs> I think, and also too, I would learn so much because these are things that maybe aren't like you know. There's bands here and there that I'm interested in, but I, I like that going into the tunnel of like you meet this guy, you got to talk to fucking yeah. Bill. Yep. Bill's got you know this. Yeah. There was a band from around that time called Power Wagon from like uh, Madison, Wisconsin that they had one record out and everyone that was in these bands was like, oh man, Power Wagons are awesome. And then I'm like, they're fucking, I have their one record and that's it. But they never went anywhere, man. They might have played Madison, maybe like, you know, they went to Chicago a couple times. I don't know. But they were they were an amazing band that completely no one outside of Wisconsin or Minneapolis or Min- the Minnesota area, the Midwestern area knew about. Yeah, I mean, I think like something like that, like what I would do differently too, is that it'd be cool to get artifacts from all these bands, whether it's just like the one photo they have, or you know, even just photographing the record nicely, lyric sheets, flyers, and then having the people who are influenced by that comment on it. Yeah, you know, that's 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 a pretty tight idea, man. You know, instead of keeping it in this box of like it's an artifact, it's like no, it's it's, it's kind of kept alive by the people that sort of took in- inspiration from it too. You know, that's that's really cool. It's a good idea. Yeah, and 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 just a simple idea of like there's always going to be someone who if doing this is cool, they're going to do the opposite thing, and it's not about the fuck you. It's about exploring the other space. You know, if the space is, if the comfortable space is this quarter, well, then there's three quarters that haven't been explored. And I, you know, and then, and then you realize then that's infinite. So I don't know. I mean, that's, that's another project I'd definitely like to take on, but that's, that's what I'm doing now. And then just writing for a ton of different outlets, you know, print and online and not begrudging online, (laughs) you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I know. Some people want to read 600 words. Some people want to read 6,000, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like it's difficult to have an actual print magazine these days, you know, to actually continue to to put out every month, you know, a monthly magazine. You know, it's like, I mean, the problem is, and, and I do understand because I understand both sides of it, um, is that it's easy to do the to run the analytics of what something online does, who it impacts, how much ad revenue it generates, to as granular as this guy tweeted it out. You know, say you write an article and say it's someone with, you know, a writer with 8 million followers or an influencer in culture tweets it out. Well, then that amplifies the community that it's been exposed to of, you know, you do the math of all this stuff. So you can pull that kind of stuff. And when you show that to an advertiser, that's more powerful to them than well, we need eight grand for this full page ad. <laughs> what, can, what do I know about that? I know what your circulation is. There's a hundred thousand of it. And probably of that hundred thousand, 50,000 are sitting in a doctor's office. So, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, I mean, it's, you know, anyone who's, you know, anyone who's doing a fanzine, you know, like a serious fanzine or a serious magazine, uh, the utmost respect for keeping the medium alive and, and, 
you know, just the value of the object, keeping keeping that alive to people, you know. And it, I I pay a certain attention to physical objects, and th- those are things I keep around and I consume them in a different way. So I think, you know, it's a it's a special thing, and it's cool that people are preserving it. And you know, I th- I just think above it, it's like these analog things exist for a reason they don't exist for made up holidays you know it's not because your band called beach dudes can put out a cassette on cassette day it's because there's a reason why there's a reason why noise bands worked on cassette there's a reason why punk bands chose cassettes there's a reason why you know jazz sounds better on vinyl there's a reason why uh long form in a magazine is made to be you know, and it's not because it's quirky. You know, just they're purposeful items. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I read I read stuff online, you know, but I really like to settle in and have like a multi-page, in-depth sort of analysis of something. Like that's what I really enjoy. You know. Yeah, and I mean, I also like to like think like if you read something cool in a magazine, and you give it to someone to read they might also get exposed to everything else in that magazine. Yeah. It's not just about no, totally. the one thing. We're just, we're passing dead ends around all day. Read this link. Look at this stupid list. They forgot Black Sabbath. You know what I mean? It's like, and then they're just dead ends. It's like, you read it, you consume it, you move on. You don't even know what website it was on. It doesn't, you know, half the time these are like scam websites that don't even exist. It's just like, they're just there to like get click-throughs, you know? Um... So I don't know. I mean, like, I like, like I said, like, I just like the context of it. Like, I'm a kid. I'm not a kid anymore, but I was someone who read every record review yeah. in a magazine just because I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the only music magazine I get regularly is Decibel. That's it, man. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, I probably read like half of it, and that's about it. Yeah. You know? But uh, I, I, I really enjoy the uh, the Hall of Fame features. See, that's the kind of stuff I like. Oh, that's, yeah, that kind of stuff's great. Yeah. You know, I'll scan through the reviews. But I do, you know what I do read cover to cover is Rue Morgue magazine. Oh, right on. It's like a horror magazine from Canada. Oh, not familiar. The best. It's like really well curated stuff. Like the covers are usually painted. I'll, I'll show you one after we're done. Oh, cool. And it's like very knowledgeable writers. And they don't just like, okay, so... Sony put this much ad, they bought, you know, all this ad space, so we're going to give their shitty Eli Roth movie, like, you know, a fucking great review. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll give you the honest opinion about stuff. You know, other magazines like Fangoria, I felt, I think things got better at Fangoria recently, but there was a period of time where they just were giving away these great reviews to movies that I know they just gave them great reviews because they're, whoever put it out, bought a bunch of ads for them or something like that. Well, that's, I mean, if we have time, I would like to be cool to touch on this real quick, is that I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and I've seen a lot of musicians specifically and filmmakers complain about reviewers. And, like, what's the go-to insult? Oh, rock critic is a guy who's a failed musician. Art critic's a guy who's a failed artist. Well, not... Well, hold on a second. Many of these people have degrees. Art, Art history, art criticism is a big deal. Yeah. Now, I think we've, we're in this reactionary culture where it's like, 
we want to find things wrong and then shame them, right? It's like, this guy said that on Twitter, and then it becomes an article, right? The role, to me, especially because I, you know, sometimes I'm a critic, right? Yeah. The role to me is not, this record is good or bad. The role to me is that record or piece of art, its role in the culture. So, for instance, if you hear a record and you're like, I know the weak point in this, you're not pointing it out to say, this record sucks. You're pointing it out to say, this record would be amazing. Here's something. It's referencing this. If you do it in a way that it's about this thing's role in something, in saying like, hey, listen, like I'm informed. I'm coming at this. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying here's the strength. I'm just looking at it as a thing. That is more constructive than just like, this sucks. These guys wear stupid clothes. It, it, I think in film, if you look at how films are reviewed, like yeah. a good film review, right. I think the director can learn something from that. And I think in music, it's tough because it becomes so much about opinion. But I think if there's a writer that you trust... Where it's like, I know that thing of like, people don't like to read reviews of their stuff, but when the role of it is that it's not doing it to tear it down, it's it's like, I'm on your side. We're trying to move the needle. And maybe your message, it's like, it's in the same way of a producer. Like, maybe your message got misconstrued because of this and that. Like, you don't have to agree with it. No one has to agree with it. But that's the role of criticism, not this sucks. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, the role of criticism it shouldn't even be called criticism. It's like the role of it is like, where does this fit into things? See, if only every uh, music writer that writes reviews had that same point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think 2% of them. Yeah, that's like a very, <laughs> very, very lean margin that you're in of people yeah, like who think that. Maybe 2%. Yeah. You know, I mean, most people are like, you know, I mean, I, I don't, maybe that's why I don't read so many record reviews these days because. I find a lot of writing to be lazy in that respect. They'll say, okay, it sounds like this, or it sounds like they use, right. instead of really describing what it sounds like, because most of the time it doesn't even sound like the bands are referencing. Sure. You know, and I just find it lazy. I feel like, well, did you even listen to the record, you know? And um, I don't know. It's I'm more likely to re read reviews of movies and, you know, films, and I feel like, once again, those people have actually have a credential. Like any jackass sure. can write become a writer in, in music, you know, you just got to keep doing it long enough and you'll become someone who writes these reviews, you know, and, um, you know, and also it's, it's, uh, you know, I, you know, just, just the whole Twitter aspect of things and, you know, people attacking you personally and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that stuff yeah. is, I just wish people could like, I mean, whatever, just take a moment. I wish people could look at the fact of like the role of this stuff is not to just say, this sounds like this. It's good. This sounds like this. It sucks. It's to offer critical analysis. Yeah. Not criticism, critical analysis, you know? And, and you think of like generations of writers who got inspired by whether it's like Lester Bangs or Byron Coley or whatever, even when they're slamming something, they're doing it from an, informed place you know and it's like yeah and they're they're flip and they're like probably off base too but we've moved so far from 
like that the criticism's part of the art. It should be part of the art. It's not, but it should be. It needs to move back into that. Instead of just like I'm the guy who wrote the funny like takedown of this new Animal Collective record and everyone's reading it cuz I dissed them. Yeah. It's like cool man, like I can make fun of shit. Like everyone can make fun of shit. Like that's the easiest thing. Easiest thing to do is roll down the street. Like that dude's got a fucked up eye, and like make fun of his eye. Well, one one of the the biggest disappointments I think in music writing is when a few years ago a Pelican record came out, and it got this environment of coming down on their drummer really hard for his perceived lack of performance on the record. And I'm just like, (laughs) you know. You guys, like, honestly, really? That's, like, what you have to say about this? It's, like, the same thing that people say. They like to knock this guy for whatever reason, and I think he's a fine drummer. I don't think there's any anything wrong with what he does live or on the records. But maybe, like, in the beginning he was learning or something, but there just grew, grew this, like, obsession with tearing this guy apart. And, um, you know, I found it to be very hurtful. And I think in one case, like, one of the writers actually published this like retraction because it was too brutal, you know? And I'm like, that's not really helping anybody, you know? Yeah. That's like, it's like people like glomming onto an idea of like, Oh, that's what this story is going to be. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, I mean, could you imagine if like, uh, I don't like the record, but if appetite for destruction came out now, there'd be dudes like put a metronome on at the beginning of every song. It's like that drumming's like all over the fucking place. Sounds like shit. The vocals are horrible, and that dude can't even keep time at all. They might not have made it. They probably you know what I mean? wouldn't. If yeah. there was like Benny Blogger talking oh, about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I do like I like Guns N' Roses' first record and the earlier stuff because, um, I mean, at the time, in that region of rock music, you only had like Motley Crue and fucking Rat and all this bullshit, you know? Right, I mean? right. And, uh, you know, they were like the, the closest thing to like Aerosmith or whatever that was out there that was, you know, like a real rock band, you know, who can actually write songs and play and do all this other stuff. But that, that was like a flicker, man. That, that lineup existed just for that brief period of time. And that's kind of what makes it cool, really. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm not, it's not as meaningful to me as like, uh, the first, you know, a couple of Swans records or, Street Cleaner by Godflesh or Damaged by Black Flag or any of those records or Times of Grace or any of those. Those are really meaningful records to me. But as far as like a rock and roll album, that's pretty, it's pretty badass, you know? Yeah, it's a good, like, I'm not into it, but I know yeah. for a fact that's a good rock record. Absolutely. You know, and yeah. it's like, I know every song on it. Like, how do I know like the deep cuts? I don't even know. I never <laughs> even owned it, you know, but I know fucking every song. You yeah. Know? I was uncomfortable with saying that I liked uh, Guns N' Roses for a long time, but you know, I, when the record came out, I got it, and I was just like, "This is kind of cool." You know, I'm not really into this kind of stuff, but this is like, like pretty cool. You know, listened to it a few times, curious about it. You know, I think it came out the same year that Injustice for All came out, which was 100 percent what I was into at the time. You know, so Metallica. I was how everyone retrospectively says that record sucks, like, dude, dude, if you were a kid and you got that record, you loved it. I don't know who says that. But they're full of shit. They're lying. They need to fucking check themselves and, like, rethink what, their whole fucking, fucking game plan. What fucking 13, 14 year old kids, like, it's not enough bass, bro. Dude, I didn't like, even know anything about that. All I knew <laughs> is that shit sounded like the end of the world when I put it yeah. on, dude. I was like, the funny thing about Injustice for All is, like, when I, I'm like, this is the future of music, man. This is like, 
this is like with this direction they're going to go in. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. And then they make the fucking Black Album, which is like, in my opinion, the beginning of the end for them. I mean, oh for sure. I mean, I have friends out there to this day that back Metallica, like still, even all the bullshit they put out over the years, they still like rep Metallica. And I'm like, come on, man. They've they've. Hey man, it's not my cup of tea. But the thing is, I feel like they phone in all their songwriting, man. Like I don't. I think it's about keeping the machine going now. Keeping those checks coming in, keeping people paid, their employees, you know. Well, it's like the. I love watching any of those documentaries about oh, them. Yeah, it's like brilliant. You watch like they got the glimpse of like what it's like because it it worked with Bob Rock, yeah. Right, and it was like, oh, pff, this is what we do now. Like so long as we follow this pattern, and I'm not saying they've done the same thing over and over, but they saw like. You know, it's like that magic of, like, who really knows what the producer really does, right? Like, you could say Phil Spector's the greatest or fucking Brian Eno. It's like, yeah, but they've done a shitload of records that didn't do it, too. Totally. Bob Rock has an amazing track record, but he's also done, you yeah. know, like, I mean, no sh- one's given a fuck about Bullet Boys. The sheer volume you of know? work that that guy's done, you're, you're guaranteed to have a couple things hit, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, and, like, he knows. And just like Rick Rubin, like, those dudes, like, I don't even remotely like Rick Rubin's production, but I know what he's doing. I don't even so think like, he has anything to do with his productions. I mean, I think like there's this conception that Rick Rubin's like slaving away over the console, but that's not at all what no. the fucking guy does. I don't even know what he does. He's like, I, I want to work in this studio with this guy. See you later. Dude, dude, I, the only thing I know that he does is like I caught a glimpse of like some shit of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers making the big record, like Blood Sugar Sex Magic and like... Flea's, like, playing, like, some crazy shit, and he's like, no, no, that's a song right there, like, just that part, and let's give it away now. That's oh, what he does. You know cool. what I mean? Like, yeah. like, keep it simple, stupid type shit, which is, like, the same as Bob Rock. Like, you don't need four million fucking parts. Like, that's, you know, I think there's something about, like, dudes who know what's palatable, and it's, I don't even think they're doing it from, like, a strategic standpoint. I think they're from, like, almost like a... Every man ear or some shit. Yeah, I right? can dig that. That's kind of like his his job. I mean, even even all the early shit, Def Jam stuff. That's like mm-hmm. he's like, well, this is this is what people are going to want to hear. Actually, this connects Guns and Roses, Rick Rubin, and you and I first got back in touch over the Cult Electric and the man the the um, Manor House recordings. Yeah. Rick Rubin did he did he produce Electric? Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Fucking. Exactly. That record put him on the map, really. I mean, all, all like, the goths and stuff, like, Electric. And I, I thought, that's still my favorite album by them, Electric. I'm, I'm sorry, not Electric, um, Love. Yeah, Love's the Love one. was, like, the, you know, there was in dance clubs and, like, goth nights. They'd always play that stuff. And that's my still my favorite cult album. But um, Guns N' Roses, you know, fucking Faster Pussycat, like, all these bands, you know, these rock bands. A lot of those British bands were getting a little more rock, like uh, The Church and Balam, mm-hmm. these other bands, like Balam and The Angel or whatever. Yep. We're going into this, like, kind of biker-like vibe. And uh, that Manor House recordings that you, you actually sent me those links to, to check it out was, like, that record electric, but with, like, the old-school, like, love production, like, the crazy effects and fucking reverb on everything and, like, you know... Very goth sounding, very you know dance oriented, and Rick Rubin is like, "Do me a favor, leave those pedals at home and plug into that fucking Marshall 8, JCM eight hundred, and that's your guitar sound." Yep. 
And that shit was fucking bone dry, man. And uh, maybe it's because the Danzig record did so good. Yeah, it makes sense. It sounds like the fucking Danzig record. It sounds like the same shit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that was going to work in the U.S. Yeah, like, if that totally. Manor House session came out, no. no one would give a fuck. No. Because then they also, like, there's really no... You think of, like, the strongest singles on Love. There's nothing that strong in that style that they did the Manor House thing. No, you know? no, no, not even close. Yeah, no, she sells Sanctuary. Rain, you know, like, it's not... Yeah, there's nothing like that, that, that that's nearly as catchy. So it had to be rougher sounding in order for it to catch on with somebody. Yeah, it had to be like a you know, Jim Morrison fronting A C D C and it worked. <laughs> like, case, yeah. You know, it's exactly what it was. And uh but once again, like I talk about this all the time with people, not so much on this podcast, but like, there's that record is sandwiched. That's like the only record that sounds like that. Oh you know? yeah. I mean Sonic Temple doesn't sound anything like that. Yeah, because then that's Bob Rock. <laughs> Sonic Temple's Bob Rock. Did that do better than, than Electric? Yeah. It did, didn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. they they kind of, like, came out with, like, Firewoman. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's like a stripper song. They killed it on that one. Then they had the ballad, the Eat Each Out, oh, yeah, baby. Yeah, that, yeah. That, uh, Sun King was Sun, a single. Sun King's badass. That's Sun a good King's song. Sun King's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. Because yeah, they, they got a little stripper pull on that record. And then mm-hmm. I tried to get into their albums after that. And I just it just did not work for me, man. That yeah, ceremony, it's tough. ceremony is a rough one. Yeah, and then they put out like a hundred other albums after that too. Well, then they had like the Acid House one, The Witch. They did like a dance club. Oh vibe. Jesus! I hate when bands start grasping for straws, man. I mean, I hate to say it, like no, not that like Billy Duffy or Ian Asbury is listening to the podcast, or maybe they are, or whatever. But it's like they're like a change on every record kind of band, you know. Well. I mean, uh, like Dream, what the fuck's it called? The one, the records prior to Love all kind of sounded similar, though. Well, you got like, Dream Time. Dream Time, the Death Cult record. That, that, those sound similar. That's Billy yeah. Duffy and Ian Asbury working together. But as a cult, you got Dream Time's kind of one thing. Then you got Love is more refined. Then you got Electric, which is stripped Completely down. different. Then they're like more like Sunset Strip, yeah. Rock. Yep. Ceremony was the fake Guns N' Roses grab that didn't work. Not even remotely, man. And then they go, like, dancey. And then on the one... And then when they came back, then they were, like, drop D, which I was like, oh, man, the cult drops down to D now? Like, they're going way late on I, that I didn't trend. even hear... I didn't, don't even know about those records. And then didn't... And then you have a new... Ba- new other... Some other band called, like, the New Barbarians or... Yeah. Some other fucking thing. I read about this... Uh, when I was trying to find a, a copy, a proper copy of the Manor Sessions, which I, I was able to secure, mm-hmm. so I was, you know, doing research on it, and I'm like, oh yeah, he, you know, what the fuck was that? That did he need to like, uh, you know, pay his cell phone bill one month so they put <laughs> out a record so he can get some some advance on it or something? I feel like Billy Duffy had a scam band around there called like Color Sound or something like that. Like, I remember like seeing that one. I'm like, no way. I'm not. I'm not falling for that thing. <laughs> it's a shame, man, because I do feel like they're talented guys, man, and like I just the the identity crisis, though. I think was always their their Achilles' heel, you know, because like like I said, love. I can still listen to that. I do listen to that regularly. That's a great album, and I put you know I'll put electric on, you know, and um, 
But as time goes by, I see that as like a, a kind of a weaker record, though. And, yeah, I uh, think so too. I mean, it's a cool record. Yeah, but the, I'm, I'm so much more interested on what's happening on Love. Yeah, and also if I want to listen to that type of record, I'll listen to any Danzig album. Sure. And get more than that. You know what I mean? But um. I mean, I actually like the Southern Death Cult record, which is only just Ian Asbury and a bunch yeah. of other weirdos. So that that's like that that album I think is great and it totally stands on its own, you know. But yeah, thank good looks on that fucking link you sent, man. Yeah, no problem, man. And it's it's actually someone told me, oh yeah, there's a there's a demo out there of those songs with guitar effects on them. But I'm like, they're they're not though. It's actually completely re- different realizations mm-hmm. of those songs. Yeah. Are you still playing music at all? Not really. I did that record with Deus probably like three years ago, Italian Horn record. And I think that was just me doing everything. And I don't know. And then I got this idea that we were going to play live. And I think that just derailed it. <laughs> like it, And like that, that was just like, you know, it's tough to translate something from your head and oh, yeah. bring it to people. And like everyone could play really well and stuff but it it instantly sounded totally different and then it's and it was also that thing of like oh dude i'm in a band and it's like all the things that come with being in a band that i'd forgotten about that like hit me really quick and it wasn't about like i don't care about playing a shitty show i don't care about the personality stuff right that's the the weird drummer you know it's the fucking like (laughs) who's late to practice who's the yawn in practice you know, no disrespect to anyone, but that shit's just going to happen. And, like, I was, like, I had so much going on in my life. I'm, like, oh, this went from, like, a cool little idea. Like, that was almost, like, a little homage to a bunch of things I like. You know, it was, like, like for Gibby and Ryan to hear a couple tunes and be, like, do whatever you want was so sick. And I'm, like, whoa, like, that's so, do whatever you want's the scariest thing to me. Like, I like a little... Yeah, some sort of, yeah, yeah, totally. And it was like, oh, fuck, like, I had songs that sounded like all different things, and I'm like, well, I got to rein it in, and I kind of pulled it into an idea of, like, well, what if you got Flying Saucer Attack and mixed it with Guided by Voices? Like, you had a little more structure, and it was less of, like, this airy thing and made it a little more economical, but kept some of those ideas. And then to translate it live, like, it was never gonna work I think and I just it sounded cool but like the I remember some dude like said this as a compliment and it would fucking bum me out so hard it's like man that was awesome that shit remind me of Husker Du and I was like fuck <laughs> bummer you know like reminds me of Husker Du is like every like generico power pop band that's not Husker Du or the replacements you know yeah which is funny cause like Husker Du are not a power they're not a pop band at all like i mean that's the thing they wrote catchy songs but there was this darkness in that band which never translated to bands they said that have claimed husker do as being one of their you know influences yeah you know? like they get like the stripped because ver- also it's like how do you sound like well what you have two amazing songwriters because you have one guy who's coming from like this more traditional like not bubblegum pop but yeah. like a, a different side and then bob mold stuff is the the darker thing, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's like that play the whole time is like and also too one thing that I think is is totally different about a lot of things now is that 
if you go back onto a lot of these bands that people considered poppy, whether it was The Replacements, even The Descendants, every song isn't trying to write a hit. Descendants yeah, would yeah. have like a thrash song. Totally. Husker Du yeah. would have some like out of the box type idea, you know? And then a lot of bands who are influenced by that, we're talking decades later, it's like they're trying to write like, uh, Every song's flip your wig. Yeah, they're taking they're like taking the essence of like an entire album and sort of reducing that into like one song and it sounds fucking contrived. Yeah, it's like Alex Chilton's an amazing song because the record's fucking got a cadence to it. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, and then here's the we can do this too. Yeah. You know? And it's like you look at like Zen Arcade or I was just gonna say Zen Arcade. You know, it's yeah. like it's fuck double album. Like it's not like every song was like Here's, you know, catchy tune. Yeah, there's, like, Beyond the Threshold is on that album, which is, like, a thrash, like, you know, like, hardcore song, you know? Yeah, and I, I mean, I love... I love how something like that flows, and I don't think you see a lot of bands do that, but but I guess back to the music thing, like, there was... Also, I was in, like, a weird point in my life when we were doing that band. So, like, my dad was going... And is going through some insane health stuff, so I was back and forth to Boston. I just wasn't in, like... I was definitely in a mode of, like, dude, I don't give a fuck. So I might, like... Like, I don't know. Like, that that became, like... The music thing was, like, to turn... That recording the record wasn't a release. It was just what I did. Yeah. And then this turned into, like, a thing. Which, I it was, like, backwards. You know, it's like, you think of, like... I need an outlet, so I'm going to do this band. It was like, no, I'm just doing this thing, and now it's become an outlet. And it's become a channel to all this frustration where it's like it's not an angsty thing. It was just like a little love letter to sounds that I like. Sure. And then that might work if you're with four people who share that and are like, yo, you, you came up with a foundation. Now how do we expand on that? It was just more like, oh, next thing I know, we're – playing two sold-out shows with Quicksand, which doesn't even make sense. It was just because they were fucking rad enough to offer that to us, which was super fucking amazing and um, beyond appreciative for those opportunities for, like, early shows for us. Yeah, it's, that's, you know, it's pretty great. But at the same time, it's like, to me, it was, like, needed to be hashed out in a small place first. Yeah, I could know? see that being a little bit of overload, you know, because I know... When you first start doing a band, it's like you want you want to play like you want to play those like twenty twenty head shows where there's only yeah. a handful of people there at some small spot. Yeah, definitely. And also too, maybe that sound only works in that environment. Like you think, I always think of like a lot of these uh, shoegaze bands that get back together and they're playing oh, yeah. venues that are bigger than they ever played, except for when they did like Reading Festival. Yeah, and it's like it's not. Yeah, I didn't it, see any of those. It, it, might, it might not really work in a yeah. 800 capacity club. You know? I, I'm not a big reunion guy. Um, I mean, it's just, it's like if you go back and play the music of a band that you might have played when you were 17, that's like, you know, a long time ago, man. It's like 20 years ago for some people, you mm -hmm. know? And it's like, how how is that relevant to your life, you know? And it's like, even, I don't know, I just never, I never really. I don't think I saw any reunions. Like the only reunion show I saw was like when Rorschach got back together again. And for some reason that made sense to me. I don't know mm -hmm. why, but it, I, that's my one hypocritical statement about reunion shows. 
And, uh, but in general, I never had a desire to, like when CB's like closed, there was this big, you know, leeway yeah. was playing and all this shit. And like, but the thing is, a lot of those bands reunited for that show and then just decided to keep going. And that was like some of, that was a, a big mistake in most cases, you know? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like a case by case thing. Like I remember yeah. like when Wire came back the first time, they were so bad. I mean, they were, it was fucking brutal. And, like, that's, like, one of my favorite bands. And to the point where I was, like, I don't even care what, almost what era. Like, you might even just throw, like, the, the mid-era records on me, and I'll be cool with it. Because I love, like, yeah, I love, like, uh, what do you call it, a, a Bell is a Cup. Like, I like mm-hmm. those records. So I'm just, like, I'm just seeing Wire. And then just, it was just, like, they weren't playing well. It was just bad. And then they figured it out, but that first round was yeah, pretty brutal. Bad, you yeah. know. I think Gang of Four did it really well at first. I saw they one of the, like, actually. I saw I saw one of the Gang of Four reunion shows. That was that was pretty. The one I saw was great. You know, so. Yeah, but like I know what you're saying. It's like, I mean, I don't know. I'm also looking at it through through my eyes of like these things are such moments where you're one thing. Like whatever music I was playing when I was 12, when I was you know 18, 22, like. I, I don't even recognize that person mentally, physically, even, yeah, you totally, know, totally. and it's like to get up there and do that. Like a lot of that music is in the moment. Like, it's not like, Oh, I was a fucking child prodigy composer and we're just playing some like orchestra shit. I wrote, you know, like, you yeah. know, like that's different. That's just recreating something that I'm not saying there's no passion or feeling in it, but that's like, that's a little bit more academic than it's academic. emotional. Yeah. This is not like, Oh, what am I fucking mad about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, your emotions are different. You're motivated by different things. Like, you have a different worldview. And, like, it just seems hollow. Even, I mean, as a singer, to sing lyrics I wrote when I was, like, 22, I don't, I can't see, I wouldn't be able to have the same emotional impact, you know? So it would be kind of pointless, really. I mean, I think a lot of it I get is, like, also, like, I'm not the guy who was in this band that, where it's like you're basically a celebrity like you think of like Harley or John Joseph these guys are like Paul Bearer like they're celebrities right but yeah. they get none of the perks of being a no. celebrity you know what I mean yeah they're like and they didn't get the money when it was like no should have happened when those bands should have been who they were or who everyone saw the potential so for anyone to come back and have that revenue stream now like hey man like it's hard enough for me to survive. If I can survive on my art, I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. You know what I mean? Like it, and I get it. You know, it's like I rather see those guys doing their thing. And then, but then on the other hand, there's some ways it seems like you're watching like Jersey Boys or some Broadway show where it's like, okay, come on, really? Like, I mean, really. A lot of these guys are just really living off of one record they made. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Sick of It All has been in the same band for decades, 30 years, and they keep putting records out. They keep touring. They've had, you know, minimal lineup changes, just a bass player. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's a band, you know? But it turns into this thing where one main guy or even a, some secondary guy will just get a bunch of dudes together and call it the band, and then... It just waters down the whole legacy of that band, you know. Well, I mean, the, what's the fucking prime example? Is Black Flag, right? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely, man. 
I went to that show and they played. I mean, against my better judgment, I went. But I kind of owed it to myself, and it was, it was a, it was fucking embarrassing, man. And like, um, to dig up Ron Reyes, you know? Yeah, just like the only dude who would agree. The only guy who would do it. And the guy he was only what six songs, I think. He he sang, recorded six songs. I mean, maybe there's demos out there of him singing other material, but. But I don't know, man. That was like one of the biggest. I don't even know what the motivation to do that would be because like Greg Gain has been, you know, doing his own thing, doing all these other bands, and then suddenly I want to re- reunite Black Flag or put together a lineup and call it Black Flag. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it for him to come out of that like dormancy. It's like he saw a flag happen when those guys did it, and everyone liked that. Yeah, right. Well, all those guys are touring and they're. All the guys in that They're band are, are active They're people. They're fucking yeah. dudes who, you know, may, maybe Keith Morris dipped in and out, but it's like he's around, he's I mean, doing something. Keith also. Morris is pretty, pretty, um, you know, he was pretty, pretty consistent because I remember right before off, he, I saw him in the Circle Jerks, yeah, like a like a year or two before that. Yeah, because so they did, they got the major label record. That yeah, time, yeah, yeah. And he was, he's been out doing yeah, it's it. It's like. Man. On and off a little bit, but then yeah. also that dude's like a music guy. Like you know that guy's invested in music. He's a historian, you know, yeah. and he's like a he's at Amoeba every week buying yep. shit, you know. Like Greg Ginn, like I don't know the dude. I'm not, but it just seemed like so reactionary of like, oh, they're gonna do that and people like that. Well, then watch this, and it was like the theremin and the whole like, like I don't know, and like you know. Mike V helped out with Radio Silence, and he's, like, a very cool dude, and, like, you know, hey, if you get a call to be Robert Plant, I don't know what I would do either, you know? But. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't change. If, the, if Greg Ginn called me and said he wanted, he wanted me to front Black Flag, I would, I'm not saying that. I would definitely yeah. 100% do it, but, you know, it's, uh, that call never, it didn't need to happen, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, like, it almost ruined it, ruins Black Flag for me, but it doesn't, really, but... At the time, I remember being very upset after that show because their bass player sucked and the drummer and like, it's like they've always had like this powerful thing going on and then it just seemed, the album cover. Yeah. I what mean, the they fuck tr- was up with that album cover? They man? could try to spin that one anyway. They want to like, oh, we did that on purpose. It's like, dude, I don't think he did. I do not think he did. The, um, I mean, with Black Flag, it was the whole package, man. It was the music, the backstory of the band. And the Raymond Pettibone artwork sure. all created this fucking bad trip, you know? And it was like, it's not, you know, I don't know, the whole thing. It For a while, I was obsessed with it. I was, like, always talking about it for, like, months, for almost a year after that show. I was, like, constantly bringing it up with people. But, you know, hey, man, everyone's different. I'm sure Greg's got his reasons. You know, I would never have done something like that if I were him. But fuck it, who cares? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just felt like, you know, here's, let's say it's like you've never seen a painting in person, right? You just, you have a textbook and you see like this amazing work of art and then you go to see it and there's some dude like drawing caricatures and handing them out. Yeah. Of just like this fucking dog shit. You're like, whoa, dude, what happened to the the thing? Like I wanted the thing, to ha- I wanted those experience of like to be overwhelmed and like what's this fucking sketch like i didn't want this this is disposable you know the one thing i gotta say though aside from all this other negative stuff 
There were moments, though, where I was like, holy shit, that's Greg Ginn. And there was, yeah. like, points in the set where his guitar playing kind of, like, you know, transcended the shittiness of the overall show. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, this is the real deal. And actually, I had the guy, a guy who went down there to, to audition for Black Flag on the podcast. And um, he was telling me when he got off the bus and that random Texas, Norman, Texas, or the hell it is, uh-huh. or no, Nor- Nor- I don't know, Nor- Norman's Oklahoma, but like some other fucking town in Texas, when he walked up to the storefront that they were renting as their practice space and Greg Gain was playing in there, he was like, he's like, when I heard that sound, I was like, that's Greg Gain playing guitar in there. And that was like a heavy moment. Sure. It's got to trip you out. Yeah. I mean, and this is the thing, man. Like, I'm not just like, I mean, Greg Ginn is probably the single most influential person in my entire life, honestly. You know, despite, as the years go by, you hear more negative stuff about him, but like his work ethic and all that sort of intensity is something that spoke to me directly and molded everything I've done in most of my life. So it's like, to have all this stuff happen to me was, you know, not to me, right? Yeah, this persecution that I'm going under now. The, um, to experience all this stuff was a real heavy downer for me, man, to find, to see some guy embarrass himself like that, really, which is kind of yeah. what it is. Yeah. You know? It's, it's just really hard if you, like, to, to stay relevant, sometimes you make choices that are, like, unsavory. Like, I get why some people are like, oh, I'm going to do that. You're like, you're trying to stay relevant. To be an artist, just a productive artist, like the dude kept doing music. Yeah, like, man. Nonstop. <clears throat> it just never resonated because it got more and more niche, you know? And maybe it would have been more powerful for him to start something totally fresh, and but it was like, I just want to revisit heavy music. Maybe that would have worked, you know? That, that's what I was thinking, too. I'm like, why don't we just call it something else, man? Or like you know, do stuff in that style and just call it a different thing, you know, because he, he had many different incarnations of bands over the years. He had a bunch of Greg Ginn, like, solo records, sure. you know. Wasn't there one, like, whore or something? Like, yeah. yeah it's, yep. like, it's said all different, you yeah, know. Yeah, I have most of them. And they're, 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 not, they're not very good, you know, as far as records go. Mm-hmm. You know, aside from his guitar playing, which is always phenomenal, the songwriting on those records are just not happening, you know. But... I don't know, man. Is that, is that still happening? Is they still are they still doing stuff? I haven't heard anything for a while, so I think yeah. that one fizzled out. Huh. I know Mike's got his skateboard brand that he just launched, like his own skateboard brand. But his entire family's like involved, and I know he's pretty involved in that. It seems to be doing really well. I've always been a Mike V fan. I, I always liked that guy. I was like, you know, there's like that one video of him beating up like five guys or whatever. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. I mean, that dude's, like, been through every cycle, and it's, yeah. you know, it, I mean, it, it always comes down to the same story. Is like, there's going to be periods where you're cool and uncool, but, like, when you're just doing your one thing that you're into, it's always going to play out, you know? It's like, yeah, there was periods where he was the best skateboarder in the world. There's periods where people are like, Mike V sucks, but he's always Mike V, and he's going to have some level of success and some something behind him because he's not like, oh, people think I suck. Well, and now I'm going to change my image. People think I'm suck. Yeah. I'm going to pander to this. And, th- and that's, that's, that's what I always liked about him is like, you always got like him. He was like an authentic, you know, thing. And 
that's why that it's ironic that he was in he's fronting Black Flag, you know. <laughs> Even though it's like, yeah, he's fronting probably his favorite band, but you know, I don't, I don't want to like criticize him for that, man, because I, I do really, really think he's cool. You know, I really, really dig Mike V. Yeah, he's a cool guy, man. I, mean, I, mean, I never met him before, but like, you know, he does a good Keith Morris impersonation, and I was really into that. That's pretty funny. I, I saw Keith Morris. I, I interviewed Keith Morris a number of years ago for uh, Brooklyn Vegan, and um, I saw him recently when I was walking down the street in Los Angeles. And it was early in the morning because I was going to buy to a Staples. I had to buy like a thumb drive, <laughs> and I was walking from. Do you know? You remember, do you know Mark Thompson? He used to work at Hydrahead. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I was staying at his place. Okay. And he was walking one way, and I was walking the other, and he just looked at me, and he was just like, <laughs> and I was like, "What's up?" He kept going. You know, I mean, we have like he he's friends with a lot of the same people that I am, mm-hmm. and I, and he's. I don't know if he's ever seen my band perform, but I know that he was at some of the shows that we played, like when we toured with Pelican or whatever, uh-huh. and he's friends with like Trevor and those guys. Oh, and, right on. And I, I know that he's aware that I'm the guy who interviewed him mm-hmm. for like three hours. We sat and talked. Oh, wow. Fuck. And that, that's the same guy who's friends with Trevor, who he's friends with. And that's also the same guy who's friends with Mark, who owns Vacation Vinyl, that he goes to all the time. So he's aware. I, mean, I don't know if, he, right, right. if I register to him as, a, as an individual, but he, I'm like, a, you know, like a, a coat or something, right. you know, or some kind of like accoutrement or accessory that's common among all these people, you know. So that's cool. Keith Morris, another, another guy that's on like one of my top five people that uh, I pay attention to. So. Well, I mean, it it trips me out as a kid from the Burbs that the amount of interaction I've had with all these people who have directly made things that influence me. Yeah. You know, like, I never... I know the cool thing to say is, like, punk rock's about, like, everyone's equal, like, da-da-da-da, but, like, all those early shows I went to, I wasn't, like, ch- talking a fucking choke, like, getting a no. coke with them or anything, you know? No. And it's, like, to be able to be in a position where I am where I get to you know, work on my art with people who got me inspired and just to meet all these people. It's really fucking cool. And I, it's, it's always this thing where like people love to tell you how the, the cool person you like is a loser. Like, Oh, you don't even know. Like I know so-and-so from X and he's a fucking loser. And it's like, that's cool, dude. You might be a loser. Like everyone's just a fucking person. They're not this person on a record cover, you know, but you know, with with so much interest in the things that influenced us, and, and even if it's something that appealed to a small portion of people, there's more of an audience now. And to have like you know your podcast where you're getting people on the podcast of, of bands that you're into, interviewing Keith Morris, whatever. I mean, I never thought any of this shit would ever happen, you know. And and to to create new things like this is your podcast isn't just information; it's art. It's an artistic yeah, expression. Yeah, a, it's a, communication. Yeah, it's communication. Right? Yeah. And it's new, so it's new. It's not just reminiscing. You're having new conversations. Like that stuff's cool. Like and you know, it's that's what's exciting to me about emerging technologies. You know. Also, just the the free form nature of podcasting is interesting because you really get to know what where someone's coming from. It's like if you you, know, you watch these like edited interviews i mean i understand that the format you know sometimes that's the way it is like if you watch like a talk show or something there's like you got 
three minutes or whatever. Sure. You know? But you don't really get, you get like these like bullet points of information that to underscore whatever thing you have that you're out there to promote. You don't actually get to know the person at all. You don't get to see what, how that dude's like mind works or like what motivates them or like, you know, where they're coming from and certain things, you know, more so than, than reading an interview because even interviews get edited down. Oh, you know? for sure. But, um, but this is like a completely unedited, like free form, you know, medium. I mean, I edit stuff if something fucks up, like technically, you know, then I cut something out, obviously. Sure. But like for mo- for the most part, a hundred percent of the time, whatever, whatever we record is what gets put out there. I don't, you know, cut out like, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about this guy or whatever. I'm like, you know, it's as, it's as, as close as you can get to a live conversation. And I think that's a cool thing. There's a record that it was, um, a spoken word record with Rollins and Hubert Selby Jr. And I think there was one other person on it. And it actually, I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world of them just talking. And I was like, man, I'd love to do a fucking record like that sometime. But it's like, that's kind of what podcasting turned into. It was just like people having a conversation about like, not even anything in particular, you know? Like we're not really talking about anything right now, really. Yeah, we're just riffing. Like, I mean, it does remind me of like, I think I was actually listening to Ron's podcast where he was talking about how he started doing spoken word and uh it was one of the club owners I forget who it was who had this idea and I was thinking like how fucking rad would it be to just do that idea again of it was like he called up a bunch of musicians and was like everyone just do 10 minutes like go to Vitus just fucking and it's like easy to wrap your head around like you don't have to be a performer it's just like 10 minutes rapid fire it goes quick people don't lose you know attention like and i was like man things are so different now where it's like people have their 10 minutes all day long because they're on their social channels communicating but if you curated it the right way like no one's doing anything like that and like that would be such a cool experience well well, the the big the big differential is that unlike social media where you're this faceless you know throwing these like packets of whatever into the universe you're standing live in front of people and you know there's really it's a different experience, you know, and I think that's, that's my thing with social media. It's like, in general, I, I try, I, I, I'm not one of these people who likes to throw all this negative stuff out there. I mean, if you ever check out my Twitter feed or like Facebook page, it's like, it's, it's mostly just about stuff that's going on. It's never like, you know, criticizing someone on the train or like, you know, I hate mm-hmm. the, I hate this guy or whatever. So I think there's a lot of that would get weeded out by people. If you actually put them in front of a group of people that have to, you have to, tell a story or whatever you know so that, that's a solid it's a strong idea i mean actually um a lot of there's like comedians who are doing uh storytelling nights mm-hmm. where they just go up and a couple of them get together and they'll tell stories without the um cadence of, of telling jokes or trying to be funny yeah they're just telling a story you know and, I, and those are interesting man like i have a few of those in my itunes which i listen to regularly and it's like a very interesting like uh unfiltered uh, narrative about some event that might have some relevance to your life or you get to know that person better or whatever. It's really interesting. Yeah, even if you had like a theme night or something, it's like, listen, like 10 minutes, everyone, blah, you know, whatever it is. But I don't know. I like I like to push the interactions with people more than just like 
you know, everyone gets comfortable in their art. And I think when you start, you know, just by stepping out a little bit, you might find a whole new thing that's... Yeah. You know, I mean, look what it, like, like we said, like, look what it did for Rollins, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> totally, man. He can watch the whole viable career. That's probably a guy that, like, most people like to tell you how lame the dude that you think is cool is, is Rollins these days. You know, I mean, I think, you know, Henry Rollins is definitely one of the top five people that, have been, that I, I look up to and have felt like have played a big part in forming my character, you know. But, you know, everyone wants to talk about, the negative things about Rollins or these perceived negative things or how he's not cool or he's not relevant or any of these things. But I mean, the dude goes out there and does it, man, you know, and that's at the end of the day, he's still out there plugging away and doing his thing. You know? Well, it's like also too, like, like any person, right? Like when he wrote that, uh, Robin Williams thing and people came down on him, it's like, yeah, that, you know, a lot of people didn't agree with that. And there's nothing wrong with being like, you know what, that was like a poorly written reactionary like thing or whatever. And that's your opinion. But what what does that have to do with his art? You know what Not I mean? And it's like, here's a person. You, you know, I just I don't like this this thing of like everything's funny culture of like, haha, like I saw this guy in real life, like eating a taco and it spilled on him and now it's on Instagram it's like whatever like ever, it's like I don't know I wouldn't have tried to shame any of my not idols but people who like were just ahead of me yeah right totally. like I would as a kid I wouldn't be like my my proudest story about meeting like Bob Mould or Bob Pollard or fucking Roger Miller wouldn't be oh dude I saw this guy fall on the street and it was the funniest thing and he ice cream cone flipped up and went on his head. Th- that would not be proud to me. And now I got all these social media followers because I was a guy who went viral with the picture of Bob Mould with the ice cream cone on his head. Mine would just be like any conversation past nice to meet you. Yeah, totally, you know? man. If that dude said like nice shirt, it'd be like the best day of my fucking <laughs> life. You know? And if he said like something even more you know, whatever. Cool. So I don't, that flip flop of like everyone's kind of game. I don't, I don't really dig it. No, you know? and like, I, and like, like you said, like Rollins is the greatest target for it. Like that video. And I know the girl, which is totally the one that, that was at, uh, the cake, cake shop. shop. Yeah. It's like, dude, I don't know. Dude buys more records than you. Dude's probably into cooler shit than you. The dude, like, when Gang of Four wasn't on CD before Gang of Four were even a household name again to the point of being generic, he's the one who was, what was his label, Absolute Zero? Was yeah, Absolute Zero, yep, they reissued. Did those reissues, yep. did the Devo reissues, mm-hmm. like the coolest shit. Probably didn't even fucking make money on that. Probably lost money getting the masters back. Yeah, it was probably some kind of sketchy licensing thing with like DreamWorks or whatever, mm-hmm. and you probably didn't see a cent for it, you know. And like, just because he wanted cool things in print, and like, so you're going to say that dude's not cool, but like... Everyone in New York was trying to be Gang of Four for a, you know for a little while, and probably wouldn't have happened if this guy didn't make the music readily available. Yeah, you know, I, you know, it's like you you can't fall. I mean, honestly, the bottom line, my analysis of Rollins, it's like for real. The only reason he has any success is his work ethic. I mean, he doesn't have a particularly good voice, right? You know, no, no better or worse than anyone else. Um. 
But it's just through like repetition and hard work that the guy actually put it together. You know, his writing, you know, his writing is, is, is fair, you know, but you know, he got to that point by repetition and hard work, you know, and that's that grind mentality is like the thing that resonates me more than anything that you can just grind through your obstacles by putting the work into it, you know, and that's, so now he's successful, right? There are plenty of people who have way more talent than him. They don't have an, any of the, any percentage of that success. And, and okay, so anyone who's hypercritical of Henry Rollins, number one means that they really connect to his work. To Pro- be yeah, absolutely. Right? Man. So that's number one. But number two, think of just anyone who gets a level of success in what they do, like the average person. You know, you see someone go from like an indie band, like they're on Front Street. They do something embarrassing, and then they lose all cred. This guy's been around for so long and has never taken that leap that is dangled in front of so many people. Like, what has he really done that's, like, embarrassing? Like, I'm not talking about... You could say, like, oh, it was corny when he was acting. That's acting. That's different. Yeah, and he never said he was an actor. He's like, well, they offered me these things for this amount of money. Why wouldn't I do it? It's not, you know... But what's the thing? Like, he didn't, like... Especially living in L.A., like, he could have ended up in one of those weird scam bands where it's, like, some fucking dude who's, like, the eighth keyboard player for GNR, and they get a development oh, deal. Yeah. yeah, This shit sounds terrible. It's, like, fucking someone from the Stooges' cousin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, No, you're right. You're right about that. That's a, I never thought of that, but that's true, yeah. Or, you know, just, like, ending up in some, like, corny scenario... You know, where it's like, th- that shit happens to these dudes all the time. Like, Sebastian Bach and what was it, Kim Deal were in a band together? I didn't know that, really. Yeah. That's a, like, they, that's a real thing, That's huh? a real thing. And the dude from Smashing, uh, Jimmy Chamberlain. Was the drummer? Yeah, one of the Deal sisters. And it's like, that's some L.A. shit that could only happen out there. Of Like, dudes, like, you could see they're probably all at, like, AA or something, like... <laughs> We can do this, man. Like, we can be back on top. It's like, these fucking people shouldn't be in a band together. Like, ever. They get a few grand together, you know, like from some label, you know, like a a subsidy of a major puts it out. Let's put it this way. Rollins was never an audio slave. That's what I'm going to put it on. You know what I mean? You're right, man. That's a good point because you're right. The opportunities were probably there, too. He's mean, a, he's a, he, he could have been the singer of Audio Slave. That would, you know what I mean? Like, it's not that probably made more sense than Chris Cornell. You know, and I'm it sure. actually did make more makes more sense than Chris Cornell because right? his like, voice doesn't even really fit that band at all. Yeah, it's like that music makes more. That's more akin to Rollins' band than Soundgarden. You know, it's like I'm sure that dude's been offered stuff like that where like he didn't. He at least had some like guidance of like and it's probably like the Ian Mackay conscience of like being so friendly with him of like some ethic of like you know what hard work's gonna pay off not these scams you know well that's you know that you can't take shortcuts on stuff you know and it's like that's uh that's the one thing the takeaway from my whole analysis of Rollins' entire life is like it's better just to grind through it to like put the time in put the hours in put the reps in and just See what happens, you know? Because, like, the shortcut that fucking never works out, man, ever. It looks like it's going to be easy, an easy out or an easy in to, like, another level, but it never pays off the way you think it's going to, 
you know, and that's and that's what no one sees. And also the scenario that you just brought out there of like not being in like some corny, you know, money grab type scenario, you know. I mean, I'm sure him of all people probably had those opportunities from the second he quit Black Flag, you know. Oh yeah, man! Like the worst stuff must have been. Going. Yeah, it would have been a band with like Rollins and like you know John Doe and like yep. You know, oh. some fucking record. I mean, he's appeared on other, you know, like that Mike Watt thing. He appeared on that. Mm-hmm. He was like on this Black Sabbath thing, but that's fucking Black Sabbath. Yeah. Or this like Tony, that Tony Iommi record. I think he did some vocals on that. But uh, that's all respectable shit. There's yeah, nothing cool. corny Mike about Watt that. record, nothing wrong with that. Hell no. Like, but yeah, I mean, that that to me is, a, is the difference of like, if you're going to like say that, I'm like, all right, well, then there's other dudes like, doing some shit like on some like corny ass commercial or like doing these like scam collaborations and stuff I'm like I don't know that that seems like more on front street to me you know if we're just gonna go to that level you know but that's a I mean it's also a, a totally different world too like where I understand that everything has more of a backing now because whatever and then it's like what you choose to do with it. Like those kids in Trash Talk, they have, you know, people coming at them to endorse things and they're smart about what they do. And then when they get a cool opportunity, they open up their own store in L.A. with like a fucking skate park in the back. And they sell T-shirts with an actual message. Like you may not agree with them or whatever, but like they're addressing, you know, because there's like African, African-American kids in the band and they're taking on race issues in their clothing. Like they could do some scam shit of like, oh, let's just do some ripoff graphics and sell T-shirts. You know, it's like, yeah, they weren't going to get that money 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But they have that money now and they have that opportunity. <clears> and that's an example of something cool, you know, and then. I'm like only passingly familiar with Trash Talk. Like we we played a show a couple of dates with them like a long, long time ago. And, uh, yeah, I don't really have any... I mean, I wasn't really into the music myself, but, you know. I just, like, as an example of, like, how these things go, of like, you know, I forget what band it was, was playing, like, on the... Like, Captain Morgan Urban Outfitters stage at Bedford Avenue at 3 p.m. this summer, and I'm like, I don't know, man, like, that's rough. Yeah. Like... Like, that's a rough paycheck to take, where it's it's not like, oh, here's a tour sponsored by whatever. It's like, this is like, you're actually like a puppet on the street. It's, that's, that sounds pretty humiliating. You know, yeah. like, these things are going to happen. It's a different world because there's more of a interest in underground culture or cultures that were related to underground or whatever. So I guess what I'm saying is like, a guy who's been on that level for his whole time, like Henry Rollins, to not take those opportunities, that, whereas, like, people are taking them every day and looking, yeah. you know. I mean, I've been resisting opening up the can of worms, but, I mean, like, what was the biggest story last week was this pharma scandal <laughs> with the guy who owns a record label, you know, the funding the record label in Brooklyn, and, like, I know tons of people involved in that and I don't want to draw attention to it but but I'm saying that there's consequences to this money this money just doesn't come from the sky yeah you know and we see now the level of you know what what can be done it's not just scion it's not just 
athletic shoe brand. It's not just clothing store. It's like, yeah, there's pharmaceutical philanthropists funding indie music. Like, it's not a small thing anymore. Yeah. And there's repercussions to all this shit. You know, so, I mean, to see how any of this stuff can play out, it's a, it's really interesting to me. You know, and like that, Jessica Hopper wrote that article, How Selling Out Saved Indie Rock, about how it's so good that all these bands like sell their things to car commercials because now they have a revenue stream because recorded music. And I'm like, that's cool, I get it. Like, but when the fuck were like, how much was Built to Spill making when they were like on an indie? Off record sales, how, like come on, they weren't. How much was, you know what I mean? Like, and that was when things were more jacked. Like they, I think indies now are more honest. Well, right? yeah, you I know? mean that's the thing. It's like money's never really come. I mean, the standard royalty program, you're never going to make money. I mean, right. you, you got to be like like you know fucking Wayne Newton or something like that to make that kind of money. Billy mm-hmm. Joel or something, you know. So, I mean, in the independent world, it's always come from touring and merchandise. It's never come. I mean, you know, it's never yeah. been like, where's my royalty check? You know, here's like 50 bucks. You know, it's it's stacked against you to ever recoup on any of that shit because of the rate. It's not, for anyone out there who doesn't know how this works, it's not like your record costs $1,000 to record or whatever, and you sell $1,000 worth of records. It doesn't work like that. It's yeah. like... If you sold the equal amount of money, you still you're actually way in the hole still because you're only making like ten cents on the dollar to fucking pay back this debt, and then after you pay that back, you're only earning like twelve cents on the dollar, ten cents on the dollar, and every fucking dollar that comes in. And on everything your shit. is a debtable expense, so it's the yeah. graphic design, the yep. PR, every ad. Um, Whatever the postage to mail out your yeah, promos. Totally, man. So that's 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 like you know fantasy world when people were selling records, you know more more so than they are now that they were making money on that. They really weren't, man. It was like the maybe there was less bands out there trying to do it. Maybe that's why touring was better, you know, or maybe more people actually went out to shows back in the nineties or whatever. But that was really where the money's always come from is being on the road and selling merchandise. You know, and that's never been from royalty checks. It's like you're lucky to fucking recoup on any of your albums. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people just forget there's just fucking more bands now. Yeah, there are. And it's not a regulated thing. Like, you know, I mean, here's a great parallel to me is that there'll never be like SAG for musicians. No. You know, it's never going to be unionized. It's never going to be like, whoa, you're a fucking scab band. You can't (laughs) play that venue. And and, uh, I was talking to someone about this. I'm like, could you imagine a dude in a band accepting a role as an extra? No way. (laughs) Music's too ego driven. It'll never fucking happen. Do you think actors are ego driven? I think I think it's a sorry thing. Like, you know. There's so many venues, right? If there was a unionized thing where it's like, no, you know what? No good bands are going to play Music Hall Williamsburg. You're a fucking scab venue, and like you're paying into some healthcare. And it was almost like the cream, the cream can get in it. Like the bullshit bands can't. I mean, that's what the, that's what SAG is in a strange way. Music's never going to get to that point. It's always going to give the power to the labels, even when the labels don't have power. It's it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Yeah, that's um. That's a pretty revolutionary idea, man. You know, when you leave here, you better 
watch, look over your shoulder, man. <laughs> Take it. You know what? Uh, just name it after me. <laughs> but yeah, that's a pretty revolutionary idea. But I like that though, man. But I, I find it hard to believe that that would something like that would ever happen. And the thing too about as much as you and I both love punk and hardcore, it's almost like those two movements almost devalued music in a way. I mean, sure. You know, it's like the rules and regulations surrounding punk and hardcore and like that kind of independent stuff, they're not really applicable anymore. You know, you know, shows being a certain number, you know, amount, dollar amount, Mm -hmm. you know, that never accounted for inflation. You know what I mean? Sure. And, and also just the, the operating expenses of doing a band is fucking way different than in the inception of like all this stuff. We played a festival a couple of years ago in England and, um, yeah, like Neurosis played it and Doom and like all these bands that are cool. And, um, you know, we were selling our shirts for like whatever everyone else was selling them for, right? And there was some other band that was like selling theirs for like five pounds or something, right? So some fucking fuckhead punker was like, how come they're, you know, how come your shirt, your shirts are 15 euros and their shirts are like five euros? And I fucking went off on this dude. I'm like, motherfucker, I got to get on a plane to fly here and fucking spend money to get to this fucking hellhole of Bristol, UK, so I can play this fucking show. That's why this shit's expensive. Yeah. But that's why it's what everyone else is paying for. Duty on it and shit. Yeah. Dude, five five pounds. That buys the t-shirt, man. Like these guys, you know, it's like maybe these guys have like a little bootleg operation in their flat where they fucking run off these shirts. But I'm just like... That was like uh, the most interaction I've had with people around the merch table. There was also someone else, some girl from Spain. We had like a seven inch, like a flexi in, in decibel. Uh-huh. And she was, uh, we were selling them for like one pound because we had, they, Albert gave us like a bunch. Okay. I was like, yeah, these are extras. Like, see if you can sell them. Sure. Most people will gladly buy that because sure. they might not have a subscription in the magazine and one pound is nothing or a euro or a dollar or whatever. So some girl, she's like, how come you're selling those? Oh, and I'm just like, let me ask you a question. Do you have a subscription to uh, to Decimal? She's like, yeah. Because don't worry about why we're selling these. You already got a copy of that. You probably don't even like the band. So what the hell do you care for? And I said, what if there's someone out here who doesn't want to pay the uh, $120 a year to have a subscription? They can get the record for one euro or one pound. So everyone, yeah, everyone it works out for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't worry about it. What does it have to do with you? Nothing. I mean, the economics of independent music are was always mind blowing to me when I just think outside of it. I'm like, I can't believe I used to pay, you know, four bucks, or you know, four bucks to make a shirt, not account the cost for the screen, not account the ink, whatever, and feel bad selling it for eight bucks. You uh, yeah, know, and it's totally. like, what the f- why? Yeah, it's like, it's like punk and punk rock music is, is a, a, it's a fucking, that's the only industry that operates at a loss all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, that's great if like you want to do this for like the summer vacation between high school and college, but if you take what you're doing seriously, it's like, it's, and it's not like I'm, you know, advocating ripping people off, but it's like, I'm just advocating fairness, you know? Like, Uh, that's, that's a markup I'm okay with paying. Like, you know, everything you buy is a markup. The coffee you buy costs 30 cents. It, it, it's Starbucks. They're not keystoning. A $3 coffee doesn't cost them $1.25. No, no, no. You know, it costs them cents, right? 
the markup I'm okay with is, hey, there's three good bands, that's 20 bucks. Of course. It should be. Or 25 bucks. Like, there should be, you know, it's like, if a band, you know, I think a band's would be psyched if it's like, you know what, we can draw 200 people anywhere in the U.S., and if you have a fair price for it, I want to fund that. I'd rather fucking pay for that dude's life than some asshole on the fucking MTA who works four hours a day and is a dick to me and isn't even making that money. You're just getting your little fraction and some other assholes making money, right? I'd rather fund that to someone. Like, I don't even have to like them. They could be the biggest dick. We never have to talk. I like your art. I want to pay you fair value for your art so you can live. Who would argue that and meanwhile buy dumb shit you don't even know where that money's going. Well, that, that's that's the the other thing too. It's like, you know, the um, the amount of money you spend at the show. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying. It's yep. like, well, all right, I want to complain about spending fifteen dollars to go in, but then I'm going to buy like a hundred dollars worth of booze that mm-hmm. night. You know, right? And, and like, why? And why do they? Why will someone pay ten bucks at a show for a drink? Because that's what it costs. Yeah, they're going to haggle with you over a t-shirt. Yeah, man. You know, <laughs> and. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, I understand. It's like when you get to be, when it gets to be more than $20, I think twice about going to shows. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I'll go see Danzig for 40 bucks, you know? Sure. I mean, totally. But I probably won't go see Iron Maiden for like $200 or whatever the hell yeah. it is, you know? But it's like, you know, you just, there's, there's a, there's an economy to this whole thing, which I think most people don't, don't see that, you know? And, uh, well, in my union, bands are going to pay for under 20 bucks, right? There you like, go, man. Yeah. There you go. But, um, but yeah, man, I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, we're, we, you know, try to do this on the, the best, highest level of professionalism that, you know, you can do. Like, I know I'm talking about, like, what I do, you know. Mm-hmm. We try to do what we do to the best of our ability, you know. And at the very least, I just want – I'm not saying I want to make – millions of dollars off it but I want, I want I just want things to be fair I want I want to not lose money when I go out for on tour for a month you know what I mean yeah and I, I it's so automatic to us because we you're in a band you've been in bands I've been in bands we know millions of not millions but we know thousands of people who do this everyone's is predominantly taking a loss yeah there's there's and the people who aren't really taking the hit have something else going you know, for for the most part, yeah. and then there's outliers, but <clears throat> you know, and and in the people who are maybe like take a band like Converge, okay, where like they can pull in some money. Well, they've been doing that band since they're 14 years old. Oh yeah, maybe totally. Maybe not Decades. every guy in the band has yeah, been there the entire time. The two main guys are decades. Yeah, but behind Kurt them. and Jake. Yeah, like they've been doing that band since they were legitimately 14 years old. Yeah. You know, and they all have other shit going on. But if they can actually turn a little bit of a profit, well, they've spent that much time to build a legacy to generate the money. And I and I get it, you know, but it's like the, the mid-level band or whatever, I don't even know what mid-level means anymore. It's not, you know, when you go to the show and you buy a T-shirt, that means something. Like walking out with that T-shirt money means something, you know. And the next time you go to a show... Do the math of what, how much money is being generated. And that's not all going to the bands. So, you know, that's something to think of, you, you know, when, you, when you're worrying about how much something costs. Yeah, fuck yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, dude, thanks for stopping by, man. Cool, man. Thank you yeah. for having me on. I yeah, greatly it was, appreciate it. We had a good, good fucking 
conversation here. Hell yeah. And uh, so I'm around, man. You know, you live in the neighborhood. Yeah, I'm here for another year at least. I just re-signed another year in Greenpoint, so. Right on. All right, man. All right, thanks for coming by. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. (laughs) 